3: Live. Hello, this is Michael Adams from Nothing But The Truth, One Man's Journey to Find It. And it's still April 3rd, 2015. We're going to do a recording here called Today's Unholy Roman Empire. And uh, of course, this is going to connect certain groups, particularly the Jesuits, we're going to start with uh, it's called C Wapa. Uh, it's S E A W A P A dot C O. Anyways, uh, they have a little website here, and I found some interesting information, so to share that with you. Then we'll probably play a video. Uh, they got a title here and the BO and the United States, the Jesuit history, the infiltration of the church and the U.S. government. <clears throat> well, yeah, plus there's more. And, uh, of course, uh, Ian is, uh, I think that's his name. Anyways, uh, he's a 17th Adventist. And they do a good job of exposing the Jesuits. They just, uh, of course, think they're a cult. They're a part of a cult, so we got uh be able to discern between what is maybe truth and what is error. So, anyways, I don't support the Seventh part of things that he does, but I do appreciate his work as far as historical work and uh, the Jesuits. So, actually, this video should be called uh, The Jesuits Have Taken Over the Unholy Roman Empire. That's how I see it. But I didn't make the video. And this is the reason why I'm going to tell you this, because we're going to do some reading and then we're going to play the video to do some more reading. And one of the things you're going to discover the Jesuits have complete control over the Western Europe, NATO, uh the Roman Empire, including the Western Hemisphere, it looks like, at this point. But for some reason the only thing I could think of, the reason that being is that it's convenient to put all the blame on America and the focus on America, and have because it's the whipping war, boy right now for the unholy Roman Empire. But we have to remember that the financial and the religious centers of this unholy Roman Empire are still in Western Europe, and they control the military. They always have. They always will. Anyways, this what this title this part this article from them. Once again, see WAPA uh, is the Jesuit order and the Los uh, Elambr- uh or uh, Labrados, Los Labrados origin. And I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I've heard it said different ways, but anyways, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, come and see, and I looked, and therefore before me was the black horse. Its rider was holding the pair of scales in his hands, and then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quarter of wheat for a day's, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Revelation 6, five. Okay. The Jesuit Order, or the Society of Jesus, is a covert military organization founded by Ignatius of Iowa, a member of the Spanish Gnostic sect Los Alambros. I'm sorry for not saying that right. So, in, 19, in 1534... Uh, the El Lombrados, Spanish word for the Illumina- Illuminated Ones, were the, a secret society of Gnostic religion that combines Eastern mysticism with um, uh, monotheist, monotheist religions and mystery religions. Origin. The El Lombredos, or Lombredos, Elambrados, maybe that's what it is, were a sect of people of noble bloodline who believed that the human soul could evolve into a degree of perfection. In this present life, and comprehend the mystery of the Trinity, they believed that when a person's soul reaches this state of perfection, the union with God, they could commit any criminal any crime, I mentioned before I say, yeah, or, or any criminal and moral or sinful acts, okay, without staining their souls. I'm going to expand this once again. I should learn my lesson by now that I need to expand this.
4: It's just uh, hard to read. All right, where was I?
3: Okay, the doctrine of evolution and reaching a higher level of consciousness is very similar, if not identical, to the New Age movement's theosophist belief uh, beliefs on a human, human's ability to achieve Christian consciousness and become a superman. Illuminism uh, was also the name of name for a Babylonian mysticism, in which initiated members of this religion claimed to be illuminated, in possession of an inner light. So, if you look at being a uh, Christian consciousness, and then we could think of uh, course of miracles that uh, people are getting themselves involved in. <clears throat> so, possessing an inner light meaning that they had consciousness that they were God-men. Gnosticism and Eastern mysticism, including the mystery Babylonian religion, teaches that his members are gods in the making. That sounds like Mormonism. And that the Lucifer, the Lucifer is the one that makes us realize that God within us and evolve this into our full potential without the need to repent of our sins as his name means Morning Star and the Illuminated One. This doctrine, which is nearly identical to all secret societies, called the Illuminati, the Illuminated Ones. Ignatius Loyola was born in 1491 in uh, present-day Gepuzko, and that's G-I-P-U-Z-K-O-A, Besk um, County, Spain. Besk, maybe uh, it is. Loyola was a member of the Los Alumbrados, or Alambrados, also adopted a military career in 15. 15- 17 fighting for the Duke of Najira, the, the viceroy of Nav- Navarre. Isn't that interesting? That's a street in, the, in my town, Navarre, and was badly wounded in the siege of Pamplona when a cannon shot one of his legs and wounded the other. Viola had to have his leg reset without anesthesia, and instead of healing it, it became worse. Eventually, his leg healed,
4: and he was out of danger, but one leg was shorter. Somebody's calling me. I don't know who that is. Anyways. I had I'm sorry about this. Uh,
3: okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So he's out of danger, short-legged, okay, resulting in his injury. order ordered his surgeon to cut off part of his bone and to systematically stretch his leg, which was a very painful procedure, all for the vain purpose of wearing boots that were in fashion at the time and in return to being a handsome Courtier and soldier, he once was. While re- recovering his wounds, Loyola became bored and sought to entertain himself by reading tales about chivalry to fuel his fancies of returning t- to his former glory as being a soldier. But as there were no books on, but as there were no books on chivalry, he was brought religious books that were only books available at his castle where he was recovering. Loyola submersed himself into religious Catholic lecture, or it was supposed to be literature probably. <clears throat> and during this time, he claimed to have had a fantastic spiritual transformation and came to the conclusion that his church, just like any state, needed an army. In 1522, Loyola wrote his spiritual exercises, which are nothing more than visualization, contemplation, and mental exercises, very similar to the meditations of Eastern mysticism and Gnosticism, oh, and by the way, the Desert Fathers. In 1527, Loyola was being investigated by the a Catholic church for his connection with the Los Alambrados. And the Spanish Inquisition led by the Dominicans brought Loyola in for questioning him about his secret activities with Los Alambrados. When he was brought to trial by the Inquisitioners, Loyola requested an audit with Pope Paul III and then it says, uh, I guess his name, real name was Alessandro Farnese, who was a member of the Farnese bloodline of ancient Roman papal dynasty, which is part of the black nobility. Lioa was granted the audit because of his influence. And there he informed Sandro Farnese, 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 that he was raising a militia to defend the papacy and supplied copies of his constitution to Farnese, which would lead to absolute control of military and politics, and absolute control of a one-world church. Loyola was completely absolved by the Inquisitioner, with only one admission. Had it not been For his influence and his intentions, which seemed to have been commissioned by Pope Paul III himself to destroy the Reformation and all opposition to the Catholic Church at the time, Loyola would have undoubtedly been tortured and forced to make a false confession, as the Inquisition did with non-Catholics, Christians, and suspected witches, Loyola was a real Gnostic. In 19, or excuse me, in 1534, Ignatius, along with six of his friends, founded the Jesuit Order. Among the six were Francis Borg, Borgia and, and, and intelligent, intelligent legitimate illegitimate, excuse me, son of King Ferdinand. Of our Aragon and great grandson of Pope Alexander the Sixth. What be odds that? The man who, with the gold from the uh, genocidal conquest of the New World, financed the Jesuit Order. That makes sense. Uh, Pope Paul the Third or Farnese uh, declared Loyola untouchable and gave him authority to carry out his own orders which were to destroy any opposition to the Pope and the Catholic Church, instigate wars and murder anyone who got in their way. Eventually, Los Alambreros developed into the Society of Jesus, the army of the Vatican. Francis Borgia, co-founder of the Jesuit Order, became Jesuit general. He strengthened the subtle power of the Jesuit general by way of assassination and conspiracies, the black pope or Jesuit general had equal, if not more power than the Pope himself and could now engage in commerce and banking, a right which had not been given been granted to any order but the Knights Templars hundreds of years earlier. After the loss at Alambratos developed into the Jesuit order Many secret societies of Illuminati developed in other regions. In the 1623, Los Alumbratos reached France where, where, and were known as Les Illuminates. Illumina- uh, uh, in northern A- A- Arabia, the group called the Rosh oh, sana Roshaniani. That's R A W S H A N I Y Y A. Sought illumination from a supreme being who wanted to wanted a class of perfect men and women. Once the Roshaniani reached a certain degree, they would achieve mystery mystical powers, and once they had reached the eighth and final degree, they were told that they had achieved perfection, very similar to Gnostics and Babylonian doctrine of Illuminism. The Roshaniya did not disappear until 18th century, oddly enough, before the uh, inauguration of the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. <clears throat> In 1773, Pope Clement the 14th suppressed the Jesuit order because of the monarchs of Europe wanted to gain control of the revenues and trade of the Jesuit order uh, had uh, control of. Very similar to when the French king had the Knights Templars executed during the Inquisition when he wanted their money, and Pope Clement the 14th gave it. Uh, to the per- pressure of the European monarchs for political reasons, uh, which would later, at uh, cost of his life, the young professor of law at the Jesuit-controlled university—I Inst- uh, I, can't—I know it, but I can't say it I
2: <coughs>
3: <Engelsted. laughs> uh, in Bavaria. I wish sometimes I had somebody with me. Present-day Germany named Adam Weishaupt uh, joined the Jesuit order. So Ingolstadt something like that. Uh, okay, joined in the Jesuit order when the Jesuits were suppressed. By 1776, Weishaupt founded the Bavarian Illuminati, uh, modeled after the Jesuit order. Weisshoff founded the Bavarian Illuminati with the purpose of establishing a one world government through science, technology, and economics and developed a secret cell model where initiates of his order reported to a superior who they did not know. This perfect terrorist cell saved many Jesuits from being found and killed. Eventually, Weisshoff, writings were intercepted and interpreted by the government of Bavaria, and his order was banned, and Weisshoff was forced to flee to Gotha under the protection of his sympathizer, Duke Ernest II. The purpose of Adam Weisshoff's Jesuit-controlled Bavarian Illuminati were to reestablish the Jesuit order's financial interests remain secret to ensure the Vatican and the European powers could never see the Jesuit uh, financial assets. Now, I just have a little point here, and I know I'm starting to really think that the Jesuit order and the Black Nobility. No- 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 <laughs> I can't say things. Nobility, the Black Nobility. Um, and if we look at Europe and its institutions along with uh, the Western Hemisphere and, yeah, United States government, you know, the, the United States, uh, Washington, D.C., and District of Columbia, um, and many others, uh, independent cities throughout the Western Hemisphere and other places are all in cahoots together. And this is all this part of this unholy, today's unholy Roman Empire. And that, uh, the Jesuits are uh, a top dog in all this, but they're not the only dog. And it's interesting to see that how little is being talked about NATO and about uh, the EU and about um, the banking system in particular in, in uh, Europe. Um, and everything seems to be just blamed on the United States government. I'm not saying they're innocent, I'm not saying they're not part of the whole unholy Roman Empire conspiracy, but they're not the only ones, and they certainly don't act unilaterally. That's being demonstrated over and over again. They might present that to uh, us in in some way, but um, the truth of the matter is I'm looking at this country, and when it comes to international or geopolitical uh, politics and, and military actions, it seems that there has to be some kind of
4: green light given to them by Europe. Okay. Well, hello, Ryan.
3: (laughs) Anyways, um, where were we at this? Okay, let me read this and then I'll check on the chat room. So I apologize if I you know, it's especially after getting reading this and we listen to the to the video. Okay, where were we at? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so the purpose of Adam Weissoff's Jesuit controlled Bavarian Illuminati would reestablish Jesuit orders' financial interests main secret to ensure the Vatican and the European powers could never seize the Jesuit financial assets. It used network and power to extract revenge on the European nobles of France, Spain, Portugal, Prama, Naples, Austria, who forced the suppression of the Jesuits. Doesn't sound like an institution or a religion that was dead on its feet back in the 19th century, as others seem to claim. Of course, that would be the 7th evidence in people that were on the show, but I'm not really at war with anybody. I'm just questioning their logic. That's all. The subvert and subvert the English most Masonic movement and prevented spread of secular constitution to democracies such as the U.S. and revenge for taking over the profitable business interests in Asia, the East India Company. And finally, to take undertake action forces of the Pope and the Vatican to reestablish Jesuit order and to never again force its suppression, Weishoff's Illuminati secret cell was also used to uh, great effect to plan the revolution, French Revolution years later which led to the rise fall of napoleon Bonaparte. after napoleonic wars in 1814 the monarchs who called for the suppression of the jesuit owner were no longer in power in the whole political climate in europe changed with the congress of vienna the treaty of uh, european powers while napoleon a mere tool of the jesuits then you will see that they don't even hide it in a lot of their artwork when they talk about what happened in 1798. There was always a Jesuit behind the uh, general that represented Napoleon and the Pope. That <laughs> always, but a lot of times, I should say. Especially the more famous ones. Somehow well, we don't seem to notice that. Anyways, uh, this is fascinating history. It's amazing how the religion and politics and war go hand in hand, especially false religion. While well, Napoleon, a mere tool of the Jesuits and the Bavarian Illuminati was an exile, Pope Pius Seventh used an order to restore the Jesuit order in the Catholic countries in Europe. Yet, the Jesuit order in its first uh, general congregations had made a decision to keep the Jesuit order the way it had been before the suppression in 1773, and thus the Jesuit order, with the help of Adam Weissloss, founder of the Bavarian Luminati, restored the Jesuit order back to its good graces of the Vatican and the European monarchies. Now, hello. I, th- I, I guess that's probably you, right, Ryan? Guest three? So, welcome aboard, my friend. If you have any comments, let me know. Um, it's going to be an interesting ride in the next couple hours, because after videos and a few readings, we're going to have an interesting debate with a Protestant, who was a Roman Catholic, King of a Protestant, and then a Protestant debating a Catholic who... So here we go. Uh, One guy who grew up a Catholic then became a Protestant apologist, and then another guy, he's debating, grew up a Protestant that became a Catholic uh, apologist. And it's interesting to listen to their debate, especially after we learn a little more history about Rome. And the Jesuits, and you listen to these guys and how Jesuit sophistry, casuistry is being used in the debate, and it's just uh, now. Uh, am I saying that the guy who's a, that both of these guys are deliberately doing that? I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if people just because they have good intentions and they have a. Um, you know they, they present themselves. You know they, you know they don't want to offend people. I, I understand this, um, but when you listen to the Protestant, he talks a great. He talks great about salvation. You know, grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and and Jesus is the answer. Um, but it's I don't know. You'll you'll see it. It's just a, a fascinating demonstration of um, the pacification of the Protestants. And how Roman Catholics, in particular, learn, whether they realize it or not, how to be very, uh, they use uh, philosophy and psychology, and they use a lot of rationalization, and they minimize the Bible. And as you can see that's clear that the Roman Catholic his argument still is today, in 2015, is that we need to get back the true church. We all need to get back to belonging to Roman Catholicism. <laughs> That's pretty much what it comes down to. <clears throat> and uh, it's amazing how this this is what's going on, and this is the real battles, and uh, how little we realize this stuff. But anyways, we we go back to this article. To this day, the Jesuit order and the Vatican have been in control of many Knights Orders of the Illuminati. And it has a chart here that says the Jesuits, and then a chart goes to the Illuminati, CFR, international banks, the Mafia, the Club of Rome, Opus Dei, the Masons, New Age movement, etc. So another example: if we look at when we hear the Illuminati, we have to always remember that it's connected to Rome, basically, either by the Jesuits themselves, whatever it is, a, it is a branch of the Roman Empire. And not some imaginary organization. It seems to me that Illuminati. One of its main goals is to corrupt us morally, if you will. And uh, but it's more than that. Obviously, it's just another arm of Rome. There's <laughs> off to be. Uh, and I wish I. Uh, I wish I could say it in the day I'm just being bigoted. And, of course, there's, you know, the, the importance of all this and the end of the day is to understand why things are going on and why not to end up joining a false organization, a false religion that does not truly re- represent Christ's teachings. So, that's how I see it, and not to put too much faith in all these organizations, so, or in man, if you will. Anyway, so the Knights, okay, here we go. So they completely control most of the powerful organizations in the world, which include the Knights of Malta, who has uh, sworn complete allegiance to the papal orders until death, the the Skull and Bones, a Freemason, Mason York, and Scottish Rite. The Grand Alpha Lodge, the Grand Orient Lodge, the Knights Templar, the, uh, the Royal Order of the Garter, the Priory de uh, Sion, Rosicrucians, the Thole, or Thule Society, the P2 Lodges, just to name a few. The Educational Religious, uh, this is Mormon Jehovah Witnesses, New Age uh, Movement, uh, and of course, they neglected to mention the Seventh-day Adventists, but I'm going to put them in there. The Seventh-day Adventists are part of that. In fact, all these movements, and you find in the 19th century, and I've said this now numerous times, and I'll keep on saying it, the connections are just, you know, starting to become overwhelming. So we get the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, which came out of the Adventist movement. Russell was a uh, Seventh-day Adventist before he started this. You got the 70 Adventist movement. We got the New Age movement. We got the uh, Brethren, the Plymouth Brethren, coming out of this. Um, we got the uh, uh it goes on. For, you know, then we got the uh, Christian Zionism and then the uh, future the, the dispensationalist movement and it's corrupted the Baptist church. So, I mean, the problem is is that you can't just focus on the Mormon's Jehovah's Witnesses. You've got to focus on the whole bag of tricks that they have. At least recognize them. You don't have to focus on I spent a lot of energy on it. But just recognize that Rome has infiltrated the church uh, as like an inside job. It's it created all these cults to confuse people and lead us astray from missing the basic truths of the gospel and turn us back into this legalism and this false religion so and I think they real there's a reason for that obviously because they eventually want all of us to get back under the wing of Rome which turns out to be one heck of a of a cult <laughs> Anyways, where are we at? Okay, so political. So yeah, so they created communism, fascism, Nazism, etc. And intelligence, CIA, M16, Mossad, etc. Institutions have been infiltrated by the Jesuit order and powerful knights' orders under their command, as well as false enemies created by the intelligence agency that the Jesuit orders had controlled over, like the, uh, Osama bin Laden. Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez, uh, Mon- uh, Mamar, I never say Gaddafi's first name, uh, Momarn, and far more other organizations which operate in the shadows and have not been found by historians and defectors. Napoleon Bonaparte. Best described the Jesuit order in his memoirs when he was um, exiled to the Isle of St. Helena in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. The Jesuits are a military organization, not a religious order. Their chief is the general of an army, not a mere father abbot of a monastery. And the aim of this organization is power, power in its most despotic exercise, absolute power, universal power, power to control the world by the volition of a single man. The general of the Jesuits insists on being master sovereign over the sovereign. Wherever the Jesuits are admitted, they will be masters. They've done a good job in the United States and Western Europe and basically Western Hemisphere and wherever else they go. So, The cause of, of what it may cost what it may, every act, every crime, however atrocious, is a meritorious work. It's committed for the interests of the Society of the Jesuits by the Order of the General. The Jesuit Order also committed many murders among the assassination of the uh, J.F. Kennedy uh, and uh, you know, when you think about that, there's endless. There's JFK, if it's in our country, many presidents, but more than just presidents. And if you look at Western Europe, and why don't they never talk about Western Europe and all the acts that they do? It seems like all the focus is on this country. You can never find anything about what they do in, you know, their center, Western Europe. So, anyways. Uh, anyways, uh like, so, yes, yeah, so the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which was ordered by the black pope, exec, uh, executed by Pope John II, and carried out by Francis Cardinal Spielman, Archbishop of New York, who was a knight of Malta, Shriner, Freemason, Knights of Columbus, and Mafia Dons, common thugs, under his command. The reason behind the president's assassination was because by enacting Executive Order 11110 and ejecting $4.7 billion into interest-free United States notes which were recalled after he died, he resisted the Pope's temporal power and threatened the Federal Reserve Bank, the Jesuit Monopoly, and the reason why they sank the Titanic, and I know this is going all over the place, and thus he interfered interfered with the 14th Amendment that the Jesuits created in 1868 and designed to restore and maintain the temporal political power to the infallible Pope. And then it goes through the secret oath, and I'm not going to read that. You certainly can find it online, the Jesuit oath. Just look up Jesuit oath and you can read it. And it's, and it's a horrendous oath, and it's something that, if it's true that these men are swearing by, which there's no reason why not to think at this point, they're not swearing by it. It is something worthy of reading. It's read on. It's been read on this show, and I'm
5: sure we'll do it again.
3: So with that, I'm now gonna play this video. I don't like the title of it. I think it's a little uh biased and misleading because it says the NWO and the United States. The United States is part of the NWO, but I guess people want to focus a lot on the United States. I guess they've been conditioned whether it's in Western Europe or the rest of the world that we're the center of the center of the universe, if you will. Of course, the United States is not, it's just a satellite state of the unholy Roman Empire. In some way, this video is actually going to demonstrate that, actually. But I guess, you know, because he's European. By the way, he has a, a horrendous English accent, so and the music, too, is going to be in the way. But you can find it on YouTube if you want to watch it. Maybe I could put this on here, so if everybody wants to watch it, they certainly can. If not, you can look in the information box and um, and find it there. But it does some good graphics. Uh, like I said, sometimes graphics can also, you know, this whole thing. A picture could be a mean a thousand words. A lot of times, those thousand words. Part of deception itself and that picture is too, so you got to be real careful when you're looking at things, so you're really looking at what you think you're looking at. And then one of the things you're going to point out is how masterful, see, uh, when you look at mass, mass media, you look at television, you look at videos, you look at the uh, movie industry, how the Jesuits control it, where it all started from for the Jesuits, along with other things like evolution and etc. What you're going to find is, is that the Jesuits have trained and used others to manipulate our minds through imagery, and so we have to be very careful when we watch in something that we can ask ourselves, are we really seeing something that's either true, of value, or is just an image somebody else wants us to see? Many times that's what it is, especially on the Internet and, of course, in the movie theaters and uh, it's a way of manipulating our minds and making us lazy. I don't know if that's happened to me. Videos make a man's mind lazy. That's why I like what I'm doing here. I know it's very, uh, you know, not very technical what I'm doing, <laughs> but, you know, it's getting back to the basics. And one of the things is reading and hearing, it's what we're used to. That's what we were designed to do, and a lot of these imagery that we're that we're seeing are just ways of manipulating our minds. So, one of the things I don't like about this video is the fact the music. I don't think that that's appropriate. I think it's very manipulative. I want you to forewarn you about that. But there's good information if you can listen to, it, to the to the actual information. It's some good stuff. I totally against the music thing uh it, it's always it does it, it it creates a mood uh uh and i, and I think that's a pr- inappropriate but what can i do about it so let's see what happens here if there's not a commercial or anything
5: like that Right, Adolfo nicholas is in control of one of the largest and least known militias on earth he succeeded Dutch priest Peter Hans Kolbenbach as the Jesuit Jes- sometimes referred to as the Black Pope. The word Jesuits can be found in the Bible. It was a derogatory name given to this priestly militia by 16th century Protestants. According to a former Italian priest, Luigi De Sanctis, the fundamental maxim of the Jesus is exposed in the exercise of Saint Ignatius. All means of good provide a link to the end. Irish American Jesuit Dan Lyons in his biography gives us an insight into who the Jesuits are and how they operate. The Society of Jesus was founded by soldiers. St. Ignatius organized along the lines of an army, hence the military unit company. They are often referred to as the shock troops of Rome. It is traditional for us to seek maximum influence, and that often means working behind the scenes. In 1610, French Jesuit Alexander de Rose colonized Vietnam from France where it became a French colony until they were booted out. Catholic President Diem was installed to continue to control that region for the papacy, and the United States, whose foreign policy of anti-communism was identical to the papacy, were used as instruments to crush communism in Indochina and the usual Hollywood propaganda was used to justify the war that the United States and the Papacy shamefully lost, where sadly, the Vietnamese culture has still not fully recovered from this war till this very day. When Buddhist monks protested against his horrific onslaught, and when President Nixon visited Vietnam, who counseled him to bomb his predominantly Buddhist present culture? In 1966, Richard M. Nixon, then a man of no official capacity, spent a few hours towards to a flower lines a native of Seattle and a wide-known priest journalist from both in Taipei. Haiphong Harbor should be closed by a mine the Jesuit priest or the future president. That's precisely what Miss Nixon did in the spring of 1972. In 2011, a film trailer was released called We Have a Pope, a comedy on the election of a new pope. Was it just Italian satire, or was it preparing the world for the resignation of one pope and the installation of a brand new pope? There is nothing wrong with speculation. The cardinals are adorned in bright red, the prophetic color of the papacy in the apocalypse. But what is very interesting is the striking similarities between the pope in the film and the elected Pope Francis
0: first.
5: The excellent leader of the papacy has presented him as a people's person who cooks his own food and takes the bus as a commoner. and most of the world press have already praised But well, there is a very dark, unrepentant chapter of his life that won't die that easily, that time and most of the corporate-controlled Western media have glossed over his role in the 1970s dirty war in Argentina. A human rights lawyer accused him of war crimes as documented in the LA Times on April 1st, 2005. But this has been sadly overlooked. 30,000 people were killed in a dark episode of Argentine history, and a recently classified documents shows the United States gave full back on that coup. A Catholic priest, Christian von Wernich, has already been jailed for his complicity of the murders, as well as the president of Argentina, Jorge Rafael Fidela. But who is the man in the top left who has given him mass? There was the highest ranking Jesuit provincial in Argentina, Jorge Mario Gogel, the current and newly elected Pope. In both the Vietnam and Argentine wars, the Jesuits have only intensified the conflict. Pope Francis I's coat of arms bears the Jesuit symbol, IHS. The man behind the Jesuits was the Spanish Basketball soldier Don Enigo Ireco, the father of the Jesuits. After being wounded in a war, he had hallucinated hallucinatory his spirit and he later by his name from Inigo to Ignatius, which means ignite. While studying in France, he recruited a company of young, impressionable minds, and in 1534, the Jesuit was founded in France, where it was officially approved by a papal bull in, in 1540 by Pope Paul III. The Jesuit's modus operandi that in order to control the policy of the world and future generations we educate the children today in medieval, secular policies. As the late French scholar Edmund Pratt was confirmed, the Good Fathers as is well known as a master in the art of keeping up with their former pupils and in following them in life and giving them their support. Needless to say, they expect their pupils to reciprocate. On the official app of the White House, Jesuit priest Charles Curry says that Jesuit educated students are in strategic areas of influence all over the world. John Brennan. The newly elected director of the CIA. Janet Napolitano, third United States Secretary of Homeland Security. John Kerry, United States Secretary of State. Dennis McDonald, White House Chief of Staff. Mark Thompson, CEO of the New York Times and former Director General of the BBC. Michael O'Leary, CEO of airline Orion Air. Peter Sutherland, Chairman of Goldman Sachs International, the London School of Economics and Financial Advisor to the Vatican. Mario Draghi, President of the European Central Bank. Emilio Bolton, CEO of Spanish Bank Santander. And Herman Van Rompuy, the first and current President of the European Council. And in this picture you can see him standing on the left, and seated under the pillar, is the Superior General of the Jesuits, Adolfo Nicholas, You can also be seen with Jesuit-educated priests. Antonio Tony Menini, the papal ambassador to Great Britain. Although this flag is talking about Franciscan nuns, it does sound similar to the Jezus' experience banned by the land of their birth. The Jezus have been expelled from over 100 countries all over the world, including the Vatican itself by Pope Clement XIV in 1773. The reason for this, their philosophy, the end justifies the means, have encouraged Jesuit war to crush Protestantism. Diego Lena, the second superior general of the Jesuits, orchestrated the ethnic cleansing of Protestants in France in 1572. French King Louis XIV in 1685 was instructed by his Jesuit confessor, François de Delachey, to force the Protestants to either Roman Catholicism or ethnic cleansing from France, and that's exactly what he did. A film titled Elizabeth the Golden Age was released in 2007, describing the Protestant defeat of the Catholic Navy, the Spanish Armada, and a Joseph plot against Queen Elizabeth I. Elizabeth's inner circle was headed by the father of British intelligence, Sir Francis Walton. He had a spy network that stretched from London throughout Europe into Tripoli within the Ottoman Empire. And it was this network in the Muslim world which not only led to the defeat of the Armada, but also the capture of 125 Jesuit terrorists who were plotting to kill Elizabeth I, where one escaped, Robert Parsons. But his fellow terrorists, Edmund Campbell and Mary, Queen of Scots, were killed. But Mary's son, James True absolutely hated the Jesuits. He said, for the Jesuits are the worst and most ambitious fellows. In the world. Why did he say that? Guy Fawkes is the most famous terrorist in history. He is now turned into an icon of global revolution, thanks to Alan Moore's graphic novel-turned-movie, Vief Vendetta. But the real overseer of the famous gunpowder plot was not Guy Fawkes, but a Jesuit whose confession is preserved in London's National Archives, Henry Garnet, The Friedkinnesian piece of paper found the German Editors Institute Ingolstadt, Booking Ferdinand II was educated in Jesuit Wars that led to the Jesuits' Thirty Years' War in the 1600s. But as documented in a very rare book, The Vatican Against Europe, by the late French scholar Edmund Paris, the Jesuits were instrumental in another Thirty Years' War. In the times of London during World War I, documents that a German war effort was fully supported by the Jesuits to crush protests in Britain. But when that failed, the superior general of the Jesuits, Polish priest, Vladimir Lewiski, Perhaps, another time to merge the continent of Europe together by war with a Jesuit-educated student, Eugenio Parkeli, who was to execute the bloody Jesuit agenda, as the London Daily Mirror newspaper of 1954 has confirmed, and even more recently in London's Mail on Sunday. While a cardinal, Pacelli signed two concordas to both World War I and to World War II. And not surprising, his top defender is the German Jesuit, Peter Gumpel. Who assassinated President Abraham Lincoln was behind the American Civil War? The testimonies of General Thomas A. Harris, Samuel Morse, and a former French Canadian Catholic priest, Charles Chiniqui, in his book, 50 Years in the Church of Rome, exposed both the Pope and the Jesuits of siding with the Confederate pro-slavery South during the American Civil War. Yes, without Romanism, the last awful Civil War would have been impossible. Jeff Davis would never have dared to attack the North had he not had the assurance from the Pope that the Jesuits, the bishops, the priests, and the whole people of the Church of Rome, under the name and mask of democracy, would help him. Lincoln's assassin is plotted in the house of Catholic Mary Surratt. In the film The Conspiracy, director Robert Redford does mention Catholic priest Jacob Walsh, but he ignores that when Surratt went to the scaffold to be hanged, she was assisted by her Jesuit confessor, Bernadine Wiggins, whose Jesuit superior, Charles Stone Street, testified at her trial. When the bounty was out for Lincoln's killer, Mary Surratt's son, Jesuit educated John Surratt, had fled the United States, and where was he to be found? In the third company of the papal swabs, the Pope's personal guard in Rome. The Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, was killed in a shootout, but it took place in the house where he was in hiding and was protected by a student of the Jesuits, Dr. Samuel Mudd. But where was Dr. Samuel Mudd educated? In the most powerful education institution on earth that covertly shaped American foreign policy for almost a century, Georgetown University, that was founded by Jesuit John Carroll. In 1919, Jesuit friar Edmund Walsh set up the very first diplomatic school in the United States where it was trained and still trained United States political leaders, okay. President Eisenhower visits Georgetown President Edward Byrne, and President Reagan, with Jesuit Timothy Healy, for Reagan Secretary of State Alexander Haig was a knight of motor dedicated at Georgetown, senior advisor to President Nixon, Jordan Reagan, Pat Buchanan, former war-wongering President Bill Clinton, the director of the CIA, both George Smith and the Bush administration. And the last head of the CIA, David Petraeus, in Obama administration, and retired warlord Robert Gates are all Georgetown Jesuit trained. It also invites war mongers to lecture, and has others on its staff. Georgetown professor, Vietnamese Catholic Viet Dinh, is the chief architect of the United States Patriot Act, with the most powerful education institution on earth, and with a Jesuit priest in the ship of the papacy where the Jesuits have meddled in the wars for almost 500 years,
4: only common sense will tell you what is in store for the planet. You and I have very little in common, but we have one thing. We uh, have some Jesuit training
5: in our background. Oh, know. But I would say that the Jesuit training, I believe, gives
3: you a sort of clarity of mind, a reasoning power,
5: which you don't don't realize it while you're being uh, taught as a young boy, but that's what they're doing to you. In 1973, the Jesuit tactics were used in a film that was nothing more than the promotion of the Jesuit order, the exorcists. The most feared deity of ancient Babylon, Pazuzu, was a demon that was possessing this young girl in this film. Based upon the true account of a Jesuit priest, the film makes God look weak and powerless, but the Catholic Church strong and majestic. Where an actual Jesuit priest, William O'Malley, stars in the film. The writer and producer of the exorcist, William Peter Blatty was educated by the Jesuits in Georgetown. Modern cinema is modeled upon Alfred Hitchcock, but a start can be traced back to the magic lantern of the 1400s, where a 17th-century German Jesuit priest Athanasius Kircher, revolutionized his invention to an occultic art form to lure people away from the Bible back into the fear of Jesuitized Catholicism. He is also the father of broadcasting with his megaphone. So why do few people know about the Jesuits and what impact do they have on the world today? Jesuitism is an impenetrable mystery to 99 out of 100 of the Jesuits themselves. Russian mystic Madame Blavatsky had access to their own writings and quotes from them. The Order has secret signs and passwords according to the degree to which the members belong, and as they wear no particular dress, it is very difficult to recognize them unless they reveal themselves as members of the Order. There is also a secret class not only for the general and a few faithful judges which perhaps won any other contributed to the good and mysterious power of the Orders of Nicolini. The judges operate in a world that few people can see, and that is why they are so successful in what they do. In 1773, when the Jets were abolished under his head, Lorenzo Ricci, Adam Weiser, a Jesuit professor of canon law, continued to note that the judges had achieved for almost two centuries infiltration. On this Catholic church in East London, you can see a pentagram. But in Freemasons Hall in Covent Garden in London, the headquarters of the United Grand Lodge of Masons in England, you can also find the pentagram. Freemasons is seen as the most secret of the secret societies. But what is Catholic Jesuitite symbols such as the IHS do in Masonic lodges? Jesuits you can see in this picture with the skull and bones. Later Freemasons also have the skull and bones. The double-headed eagle of the Holy Roman Empire could also be seen among the high degrees of Freemasons. And the famous evil eye of ancient Babylon and Egypt can also be found on the apron of Masons. In a book approved by the Jesuits it says, In 1902 the Masonic historian J.G. Finnell wrote that the Jesuits had succeeded in all parts of the globe in creating strife and confusion among Freemasons by tampering with the rituals and by the introduction of higher degrees. When European scientists attempted to recreate the so-called Big Bang Theory in 2008, it was highlighted in the film Angels and Demons. But what is generally overlooked is, who actually created the Big Bang Theory? The Big Bang Theory was first described with not so much name by the French Jesuit George Dimitri in the late 1920s. His picture of the universe expanding from a single point was certainly controversial but has now become scientific orthodoxy. The scientific community that actually praises itself while its secularization believes in the Big Bang Theory, scientific speculation that has still never been proved, which shows that Jesuit scientific philosophy dominates the direction of modern science. Where the top Jesuit science astronomers are Darwin's, who try to learn the secular and the secular, which is called mythic evolution. For Jesuitism is founded not on the Bible, but upon the teaching of Aristotle. Where the Jesuit's ratio to joy still impact second education today. It should not be overlooked that the advantages as well as the disadvantages of our humanist classical education are for the most part attributable to that pedagogic activity which at one time was spread by the society of Jesus all over the world. The Jesuit president of Boston College, William Lachey, caused controversy when he welcomed war-monger commonly the rights to Boston College, but this is not the first. The Dutch protestant prince, William the Silent was killed by the Jesuit assassin, Balthazar Gerald. The French Catholic monarch Henry III, as well as his cousin and successor, Protestant King Henry IV, were both killed by Jesuit assassins, as well as Italian the Celebroni Rose. Why this fascination was worthless? Celebroni tells us why. Jesus reckoned among the greatest achievements of the order that Loyola supported by a special memorial to the Pope a petition for the reorganization of the abominable and abhorred instrument of wholesale butchery the infamous Tribunal of the Inquisition. The Jesuit took over the Inquisition from the Dominicans. And while many people think it is long gone, the London Guardian of 2006 tells us that the Inquisition formally ended only 40 years ago. In that same year, A Dominican Joseph Augustine Dunoy said that the Inquisition was justified. That it means all these horrific instruments that bring the most excruciating pain, as well as torture, secret courts, military tribunals, and no trial by jury are just. The minute the 16th visited Brazil, He prayed the history of Catholicism, but he was blasted by the late Venezuelan president, Hugo Chavez, for the horrors of the Latin American Holocaust that was imposed upon them. For the Catholic Church, who justified horrors, made the film apocalyptic, which shows the natives of Latin America as complete savages, who were saved by the Catholic Church. But there is one country, despite its own colonial horrors, that has put up the strongest resistance to the papal inquisition. And the British Supreme Court has a monument of King John and the Magna Carta as a memorial to this. What is the Mac Magna Carta? The best authority on this is the protestant historian, J.A. The great principle conceded so early the days of King John and Magna Carta, after in the reign of Charles II in the famous act of Habeas Corpus, and held by all states as were well flourishing to be one of the main foundations of British liberty, namely the inviolability of the suffered state by the authorities of law. There are other monuments in places like Runnymede in the south of England near the River Thames where the Magna Carta was actually signed as a memorial to this resistance. There are also memorials in places like Bury St. Edmunds in the east of Angle that records the famous Magna Carta and the Hunts of Mice and the 25 names of the barons that stood up to the Pope and pressured England's king to sign this charter. King John did not want to give in to the authority of the Pope, but when in Innocent III, the Godfather of the Inquisition, who eventually condemned the Magna Carter and threatened him, he gave in and handed his crown to the Pope's ambassador in England, but the English were not having it, and on the 12th of June 1215, he signed the Magna Carton, which English jurist Edward Cook adopted into English common law. The Puritans and founding fathers in the colonies of the United States also adopted into their constitution now coming on the question. Section 39 of the Magna Carta reads, No free man shall be seized, or imprisoned, or stripped of his rights, or possessions, or outlawed or exiled, or deprived of his standing in any other way. No will be with force against him or sent out to use, except by the lawful judgment of his equals by the law of the land. But well, we're now seeing that secular politicians and judges on the back of the war on terror are trying to stealthy incorporate the principles of the Inquisition in the British system. When EU laws are undermining the authority of the Magna Carta, aligning itself with the threats of Pope Innocent III by sounding almost identical to Roman canon law, a person accused in a penal case can, even though absent, be brought to trial before the tribunal of the place in which the offense was committed. Accusing a person of a crime before its committed is also from the Inquisition, which is displayed in the trailer of this post 9 11 film, minority report. Positive
1: for Howard Marks.
5: Marks, I mandated to get you to Columbia Pre Crime Provision. I'm placing you under arrest of the future murder Sarah Marks and now a new to take place today, April 22nd 0800 hours. Where does the torture method of water warding actually come from to extract the information from a suspect? It is from the Papal Inquisition, as well as methods like. Spying on your neighbors the United States Patriot Act, which the last United States President George Bush Jr. incorporated into U.S. law. He also incorporated secret prisons and told the spying agency the NSA to spy on phone conversations with United States citizens. That was acted out in a film that did the exact same thing in 2008, The Dark Knight. With constant terror laws being passed threatening freedoms, President Obama continues the Inquisition will glorifying the use of torture. In Catherine Biglow's film Zero, Dark 30. While many may laugh and mock and think that the Jesuit agenda is outdated, the last Superior General of the Jews with Peter Hans cover back in 2003, tells us clear objective. The efforts of the Jews to bring Britain back to the Catholic faith being praised by the leader of the order. It is a not Britain a Protestant nation with a secular culture? What exactly do you mean by that? The Battle of Hastings, Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, and the Magna Carta are amongst those who will no longer be compulsory in a revived curriculum to be sent to school. They can learn how Henry VIII was dressed, but nothing about the Reformation. Oxford Don John Wycliffe started the European Reformation in the 14th century to restore a superstitious age back to the true knowledge of God. In the Battle of Hastings in 1066, William conquered Britain for Rome. But during the Reformation, Henry VIII separated Britain from Rome. The British unsung hero, William Tyndale, continued from White House in the 16th century a translation of the Bible, which was completed in the 1611 King James Version, which even English Catholics have benefited from. The Reformation gave us true science, divine philosophy, the media, free of the press, freedom of speech, the right of society the so according to govern it for the of justice and equity, educating the masses, public libraries, religious and civil liberty to protect us from ecclesiastical tyranny. But all these freedoms are slowly being eroded and undermined. In the 13th century, Catholic German bishop Eberhard II called the Pope the Antichrist and Babylon. Three centuries later, Martin Luther did the same thing. Why do they call the Pope the Antichrist? In the Pope's own words, in the book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, it says, the leader of the Catholic Church is defined by faith as a figure of Jesus Christ and is accepted as such by believers. The Pope is considered a man on earth who represents the Son of God who takes the place of the second person of the Omnipotent God of the Trinity. Have no fear, he says, when people call me the Vicar of Christ, when they say to me, Holy Father, or your holiness, or use titles to these would seem even inimical in conflict to the gospel. This does not stop Protestants like Billy Graham, and one of the former heads of the Church of England, Lord Cure, to accept papal supremacy. And bishops like T.D. Jakes, who are now addressing our Roman Catholic cardinals, and are now part of the movement to merge all the protestant churches with relatives. Why is this? The late Abraham Manhattan tells us why. Ecumenism, which from its very beginning coupled with protestantism and leftist political bent, resulted in the unfundable of the major protestant bodies. So we see that the Jesuits are working with the protestants, to weaken the process of churches and this was done to the power very recently confirmed by a Jesuit in Vatican II. Vatican II was opened by Pope John XXIII and he gave it the instructions to Jesuit Cardinal Augustine Beer. And we've seen in Vatican II the attire of the bishops is in his papal mitre from ancient Babylon. But what we are now seeing that protestant churches are now adopting the attire of the papacy, which shows that the Jesuits' work and agenda of infiltration and conquering protestant churches have almost come to completion.
3: Okay, <clears throat> that was... Oops... Well, it's titled "NWO in the United States: The Jesuit History and Infiltration of the Churches in the United States Government." And um, yeah, so anyways, some very good information there as far as what the Jesuits what Rome has been up to. So now we'll go back to this article, a new article from that same uh, C W A P A cool. And uh case okay, somebody shows up in the chat room and they want to see it, so I guess they will give it to them. Uh, people come and go. So anyways this one is called uh Europe is run by the Jesuits. Introduction to Jesuit Order That continued the reign of the Holy Roman Empire is almost 500 years old covert operation, geopolitical, male-only organization, structured as a secret military operation. And then it says, demanding secret oaths and complete obedience to each direct superior, which is ultimately the superior general, often nicknamed the Black Pope since he dresses in black and stands in the chateau of the white pope. And then there's that famous painting that I think is from the it's, it's whatever that is but they use it all the time anyways so of uh, uh, that uh, general that represented uh, Napoleon's army uh, supposedly took over uh, the papacy and took the pope back to France, and in the background was a Jesuit, <laughs> which tells me some things. Anyways, it, let's see what this, this is Holy Roman Empire, interesting little graph that they have, I don't know if it's true or not, or truly exact, accurate, but it says, know your history, and it starts out, you know, how the whole, you know, these, um, I don't know where he got that. So, anyways, um, starts with the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, Grecian Empire, Roman Empire. Then it goes the Holy Roman Empire started first Reich, Rhine Reich, uh, the city from 800 A.D. to 1806 A.D. Then from 18 seventy one to nineteen eighteen, the second Reich, and then the uh third Reich, Reich is the uh nineteen thirty three to um, uh nineteen forty five the fourth Reich they say started in two thousand and four to two thousand fourteen and then they're saying the fifth Reich uh BRICS that's from started last year. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting, interesting, but I don't know. Anyways, back to this. The Society of Jesus, as they are uh, officially known, was originally used by the Vatican to counter the various Reformation movements in Europe, to which the Vatican lost much of its religious and political power. The absolute temporal ruling power has always been the Vatican's institution's primary objective. The Jesuit Order is since 1814 in complete control of uh, of obscenely wealthy Vatican institution and the Catholic clergy hierarchy, and presently also controls various organizations together with the military order of Malta, such as the United Nations, the New World Order government, NATO, the military power, European Commission and the Fourth Reich of the Holy Roman Empire, this is what this person says in this article, the Council of the Foreign Relations and other thinkers or policymakers, various central banks, uh, Ponzi schemes, fiat currency system, big corporations to monopolize the world, secret services such as the CIA, Mossad, Inter- Interpol, NSA, and I-6, KGB, um, numerous societies and cults, such as Freemasonry. Well, let's look at a couple of these things. Let's look at, uh, see what kind of big uh, corporations they monopolize. Well, it doesn't have anything there. We have to go look for that. Okay. Let's see what this has to say. Maybe it has nothing to say. Brotherhood
4: and secret societies um, so they
3: control AA, a secret society to protect the secret uh, uh, the 1001 club bankers, and intelligent agencies raw materials exclusive analysis of cult systems found in the Bank of America murals, ancient uh, secret societies, UFO, or Okay, Black Nobility Blue uh, Brethren Bohemian Grove, uh Brotherhood of the Bell, Brotherhood of the Snake, and Brotherhood of the Shadows. Okay, what else? we also got all a whole bunch of these different things. Los Lumiana. That just looks like we need to have a field day here with the Secret Society. One of these days I think we'll do that. <clears throat> we'll see what else they have.
4: The um, European Commission for Twitch and Women Empire. Paperworm, okay, okay, all right. Um, Yeah, there are plenty of reasons to keep
3: a close eye on Herman Van Rompuy, President of the European Council early September 2013. Van Rompuy spoke to the uh, interreligious dialogue in Florence, or dialogue, the... um, We're did not noticed, but fortunately there was still the uh, Catholic uh, news of the, uh, news of blood. I don't know. It's some kind of, I don't know what language that is. For, oh, from uh, Den Bosch, Rome's last resort in the Netherlands. Uh, the newspaper probably quoted von Rumpai as announcing, We are all Jesuits. Isn't that sweet? We're all Jesuits. He was referring to the prominent European leaders with whom he is developing the architecture for the future Europe. It creates unbreakable ties. So there is a Jesuit international, quotes. We are all those people that, who are those people that von Rompuy himself schooled by the Jesuits in Sin John. Berkman College in Brussels. <clears throat> Brussels. Something that we never hear about, especially those people that live there, don't talk about it, Was talking about. First of all, there is Josh Manuel uh, or, uh, Barroso, president of the European Commission. Secondly, there is Jean-Claude Juncard Prime Minister of Luxembourg and Chairman of the EU Group, von Rompuy, or Rompuy, also mentioned the President of the European Central Bank, ECB, Mario Draghi. Drafi, I mean, Drafi is what his name is. Who was schooled in the Roman Jesuit College? Institutal Miss uh, Miss, Ma- I am not even going to try that. I'll try it again. Massimiliana, Massimiliana <laughs> uh, uh, Massimo. Uh, uh, the Italian Prime Minister Mario Monte and his Spanish colleague Mariano uh, Rajoy have also been shaped by the Jesuit colleges. It ran bumpy, cheerfully added fortunately there is Anglia uh, Angela uh, uh, okay this is the president of Germany, right and Angela Angela Merkel a stubborn daughter of the of a avisor or vicar for the former DDR. To act as a counterweight listening to von Rumpy, you will instantly notice similarities of the Jesuits with Europe. The Jesuits form the vanguard of the Catholic Church. Like the European elite is the vanguard of the European uh, inter- integration, both portray themselves as the elite elevated above the ordinary people. Their methods are very similar. A sophisticated lie and purposeful deception is allowed when framed in the interest of the greater goal. A barely contained citizen uh, typifies the attitude towards the normal citizen, the ignorant fool who within a democracy needs to be protected from himself. The Catholic and European elites work together in inner circles this makes a lot of sense when I was in Europe, that's what I saw. And I didn't even realize what I seen at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, oh, okay. It didn't mean anything to me. But it's just young and dumb, so now I'm just old and dumb. The rest is pros, or pros. Hi, pros. The rest is pros, okay. Rose, pros. I guess that's what it is. Pros. Uh, Van Rumpy. Uh, Barroso, Monte, uh, Rajoy are frequent visitors at papal audiences. It is not surprising that this mentally leaves traces in the European structures and working methods. Or this mentality leaves traces in the European structures and working methods. The ECB has a governing council of 23 members, among which are six members of the Executive Board. The ECB setup is hardly different from the Vatican. The Governing Council ranks no women, is not accountable to a parliament, and the minutes of its meetings are classified. The American Federal Reserve Bank and the Bank of Japan have to publish the minutes from their board meetings. The ECB plays a central role in the Eurozone, moving around billions of Euros, but no one knows how the bank in Frankfurt makes decisions. The papal butler exposes the secrets, and this Euro Jesuits are intellectually superior. They are way smarter than the guy... Uh, Verhofsted, leader of the liberal faction of the European Parliament, and his Green counterpart, Daniel Kahn Bennett. Bennett. Something like that. And obviously a lot smarter than me. I can't even pronounce half these names. In their book for Europe, they scream their goals at the top of their lungs. A federal Europe... With one government and a European tax and one army, the only thing is missing is one secret service and one leader. So the Europe is back to where it started. Put this to a referendum, and the United States of Europe is limited to Italy and Belgium. And I don't wonder why uh, our friend from Belgium, who's German, who worked for NATO, never talks about this stuff. Why do you never talk about this stuff? I bet mean, you never listen to this, but why does he never talk about this If I asked him that, too, and they never talk about this stuff. Uh, there's something very suspect, and I think uh, Tom Fress is getting used big time here and he doesn't even realize it. So. God bless him. I hope God uh, does something for him and wakes him up. Even uh, Slyer is the final report a handful of ministers of the foreign affairs of the future of Europe. The report is signed by 11 out of the 27 member states. A minority among them is Netherlands. the Netherlands. The usual suspect, the UK, did not sign, neither did Sweden or Finland. Of the new member states, only Poland signed. The conclusion of the group, the Euro is the most powerful symbol of the European integration many rescue operations and emergency funds are conveniently ignored. Among Some amongst the 12 ministers, it is not clear which ones, argue in favor of the European army. Such an army will undoubtedly be a paper tiger because the armies of euro countries are shrinking rapidly as a result of the crisis. Surprisingly, Greece spends the most in its military per capital. Yet Greece did not sign. In short, the 11 ministers like the oriented soccer like a disoriented soccer team, excel at scoring their own at scoring in their own net. <laughs> this is something that would never happen. To the Euro Jesuits. The report towards the genuine economic and monetary union only consists of building blocks and suggestions, and the report suggests implementing a European despot guaranteed scheme. Nothing dramatic, of course, it's just a suggestion. In a painless exercise of words, citizens are molded into thinking processes. Uh, that goes beyond them as soon as they realize what building those blocks are meant to create, they are already trapped in it. What used to be suggestions will be f- uh, fate fear uh, the- uh, fate uh, comp- uh, company, and these who object are labeled as unreasonable and Fact, uh, factious or
4: populist, so fractious or populist, excuse me. So unreasonable or fractious or, or a
3: populist. Meanwhile, the never-elected Prime Minister Monte has announced that he will start a European campaign against populism Van Rompuy, also never elected, immediately gave his support. Monty had early stated that the national parliaments should not get in the way of European leaders, thereby referring to the German uh, Bundestag, they have to educate, they have to be educated. Jesuit, the Jesuits lead the people. Who are in turn supposed to follow? What is po- what is populism to them? It is the ignorant who refuse to follow. Any Greeks, the protesting Spaniards, the concerned Germans, the EU critical Dutch, the, a Europe which is such an elite mentality needs a reformation, but that is something Jesuit international detest. What an annoying populace he was, that Martin Luther. <clears throat> and it says goes on to this uh, depopulation agenda. Twenty-one started in the Netherlands. <clears throat> Nazis put millions, if not billions, of lives once again in jeopardy. The present Dutch monarchy was originally founded in. 1813 after the expulsion of the French. Uh, the Prince of Orange was proclaimed sovereign prince of the Netherlands. William I. Frederick born Wilhelm Frederick Prince von Orange Nassau uh, 44 August 1772 uh December uh 12 December 1843 was the prince of orange the first king of the netherlands and the grand duke of luxembourg in germany he was ruler uh, as first or first of the for principality of uh nassau orange uh fuda i don't know from 1803 to eighteen oh six and of the principality of the Orange New Song. In eighteen thirteen William King William the was named Sovereign Prince of the Netherlands and proclaimed himself King of the Netherlands, where one one year later in eighteen fourteen he founded the uh the I don't know uh, Netherlands Bank, the bank of the Dutch Bank, and exchanged the British uh bank Island in Indonesia against the Dutch established uh, Koshin in India. Nathan and James Rothschilds, Ashkenazi uh, Jews, video came had come up with a scheme that would put the Illuminati plan for the world domination in action. It would also uh, make them filthy rich. The brothers helped finance both sides, the French and English, uh, by Napoleon's famous battle Waterloo. Former. Uh, United Kingdom of of the Netherlands, now Belgium, which was fought on Sunday 18th June 1815 by the combination of the British slash Dutch Hanoverian Prussian armies. With advanced knowledge of the British victory, Nathan Rothschild spread lies that the British had been defeated which caused a crash of the value of the British government bonds, while panic, panicked English investors sold their uh, life savings. Nathan Rothschild bought up their bonds for pennies on the dollar. and the, uh, the foul swoop, the Demon, the Demon Brothers had double-crossed the English masses. They received this time control of half the world's wealth, including the Bank of England, and this has a video, and confirmed officially the new Dutch monarchy at the Congress of Vienna as part of the rearrangement of Europe after the fall of Napoleon Bonaparte. The House of Orange, I I don't know how to pronounce it, Nassau? It's N-A-S-S-A-U. I'm going to
4: say Nassau, Nassau, Nassau.
3: were given what is the present day Netherlands and Belgium to govern as the United Kingdom of the Netherlands and the Grand Duke of Luxembourg in 1822 the Dutch General Bank was founded by King William Wilhelm I would say William Willem, the I of Netherlands. Two years later, of 1824, the British transferred the island of uh, Bilitan, Indonesia, into Dutch hands, despite its rich resources. So the Dutch King William I established the Dutch Colonial Bank to promote and develop trade, shipping, and agriculture. After the Belgium Revolution in 1830, the Belgium General Bank became Belgium, under the French name Société Générale de Belgium, Something like that. In the year 1900, the, Bel- the Dutch colonial bank Queen uh, Wilhelmina founded the Dutch Cocaine Factory, NCF, and I guess we have a video of that, the Netherlands, Amsterdam, which produces in the twentieth century, a large scale cocaine out of the Dutch east indies grown cocoa cocoa plants and in nineteen ten the n f c factory once again then the uh, which stands for the Dutch cocaine factories or netherlands uh, had become the largest cocaine factory in the world and twenty eight did you know? That? I didn't know that. No wonder was so important. This cocaine, <laughs> such an integral part of the Roman Empire, apparently. Uh, on the 20th of July, 1914, began a global war s- centered in Europe, World War One, and lasted until the lo- 11th of November. Uh, nineteen eighteen and here's a video. It was predominantly called the World War or the Great War and it involved all the world's greatest powers. During World War One the Dutch cocaine factories, NFC expanded and soldiers were drugged worldwide as fighting machines. The tablets were pressed in England and supplied to countries worldwide, including to the Germans. Listen to the interview English. So they have an English interview here. Despite the Opium Act, uh, just after World War One in 1919, the Netherlands manufactured and exported further because of the huge international market with cocaine addicts they had created World War One. What actually happened, according to Benjamin Freeman? And says so here's a video. One, two, three, four. Okay. So the missp. One. Must be aware of the fact that were repetition.
4: Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Sorry, folks, I need to take a break here. Anybody's listening?
3: Uh, it's fascinating to read. You can learn more about it. Let me, uh, we'll start this video. Because we're still, not, we only got into there. Uh, yeah, I'm going to start this video, this, this debate. <clears throat> and I want you to think about things. I want you to think about what you're listening to. I want you to think about how the use of uh, Jesuit sophistry, how they're using uh, something that seems really probable, logical, but uh, is you know, a whole bunch of deception. Think about what's being said, especially the guy who represents the Catholics, how he doesn't really address the issues. And what the real issue for this Catholic is, is he wants the Protestants to rejoin the Catholic Church. Also listen to what Bowman has to say as far as the, uh, what it means to be a Christian if you're a Protestant. It has nothing to do with the religion you belong to, but do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you really believe in what Jesus did? That Jesus is the answer, and none of this, you know, rituals, traditions, and all that are the answer. So, It's fascinating, but I do want you to think about what you're hearing. I want you to think much more deeply. Don't get touched with all the emotionalism. Uh, Don't be controlled by it. Don't be fooled by all the emotionalism, and uh, let's check it out.
1: Thank you and good morning. Since I won the coin toss, Rosette lost the coin toss, and I'm going first, let me begin by trying to explain what I understand us to be doing here this morning. Uh, This is uh, being billed as a dialogue between Catholics and Protestants, and indeed it is, but And I say this uh, with some regret, Uh, we are not representative of all Catholics or of all Protestants. Today, both Catholicism and Protestantism are extremely diverse religious communities with seemingly little unity on either side. Let's set aside for just a few moments the question of the official teachings of our respective wings of the Christian religion. The fact is that most Catholics and most Protestants today do not have a firm, sound grasp of the Christian faith. The divine inspiration and authority of Scripture is denied in churches, seminaries, and Catholic and Protestant universities across this country and throughout the Western world. The historic Christian confession of Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead is increasingly denied by theologians And ignored by churchgoers. Many churches today there is greater interest in social issues and political causes of the left or the right than in spiritual issues or the cause of Christ. Now all six of the Catholic and Protestant speakers that you will be hearing today are passionately concerned to turn this situation around. Each of us wishes to call the Church of Jesus Christ back to its roots back to the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, and witnessed by the creeds of the early church. Though Professor Samples and Father Pacwa, for example, later this afternoon, are going to be disagreeing about the role of tradition and church authorities, they agree, and all of us agree, that Scripture is the unerring, absolutely authoritative, and life-transforming Word of God. Dr. Logan and Father Greshel are going to express some disagreements about the full significance of the Eucharist. But they and all of us agree that in the celebration of the Eucharist, the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, is really present in and with his people. That Jesus Christ is alive and living in his people, in his church. Dr. Hahn and I are going to be disagreeing this morning about justification the relationship between faith and works and grace. But we both agree, as do all of the other speakers, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world, and it is only by the mercy and grace of God in Christ that we can enjoy eternal life in God's forever family. So as we get into some of the specific differences between Catholics and Protestants, I would ask you to keep in mind this considerable common ground that we share. The subject in which I've been asked to speak this morning is salvation and more particularly justification. As soon as the subject is brought up, a question arises. In acknowledging that we have differences about the doctrine of salvation, are we saying that those who differ with us can't be saved? In order to defend and proclaim the gospel, of salvation in Jesus Christ as we understand it, must we as Protestants regard Catholics as lost? And should Catholics return the favor? Now the Catholic Church's teaching on this question is quite clear. According to the Second Vatican Council, which met in the 1960s, Protestants are separated brethren. Protestants are Christians who are missing the full riches of the Church according to Catholicism, but Protestants are Christians, and they can, and in many cases are, in fact, saved. By the way, I should tell you that not all Catholics seem to have gotten this message. I once got a letter from a Catholic who insisted on the authority of his church that all Protestants were going to hell. Uh, I wrote back to him and pointed out that the Catholic Church says otherwise, And then he wrote back to me and he said, well, maybe you're not all going to hell, but you're all going to purgatory for a really long time. (laughs) That's probably my one funny story for the morning. I have to admit that some Protestants have more or less the same opinion of Catholics. There's a strong and vocal segment of conservative Protestantism well represented in this country that regards the Roman Catholic Church as a false church and Catholics as simply lost, without qualification. Or if they admit that there might be Catholics who are saved, then they're not true Catholics. They're not real Catholics. They're really Protestants. They just don't know it. I'm sure this is insulting to Catholics, and it's also simply not true. In my opinion, the main reason for taking this opinion uh, this position, is the belief, which is sincerely held by many Protestants, that the Catholic Church teaches a false gospel of salvation by works, a gospel which no one can believe and be saved. I wish I could give you a simple yes or no thumbs up or thumbs down to this question. All Catholics are saved, all Catholics are lost, black or white. I'm notorious for not giving such simple answers to such difficult questions. In my opinion, the situation is much more complicated than that. On the one hand, I have no doubt that there are many Christians in the Catholic Church who are just as much God's children, just as much saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ as I am. I believe that my brother Scott Hahn is one of those persons. Charles Hodge, the great 19th century Calvinist theologian, expressed this conviction with great clarity. I quote Charles Hodge because he's writing over 100 years ago and he can't be accused of giving in to the ecumenical spirit of the age. Charles Hodge is no friend of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, adamantly opposed much of what the Roman Catholic Church taught, but this is what he had to say. Indeed, it is a matter of devout thankfulness to God that underneath the numerous grievous and destructive errors of the Romish Church, the great truths of the gospel are preserved. The Trinity, the true divinity of Christ, the true doctrine concerning his person as God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever, salvation through his blood, regeneration and sanctification through the almighty power of the Spirit, the resurrection of the body and eternal life are doctrines on which the people of God in that communion live and which have produced such saintly men, as St. Bernard, Fenelon, and doubtless thousands of others who are the number of God's elect. Every true worshiper of Christ must in his heart recognize as a Christian brother, wherever he may be found, anyone who loves, worships, and trusts the Lord Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh and the only Savior of men. I think Hodge strikes a balance here that I find refreshing in today's religious climate. On the one hand, Hodge acknowledges in a very warm fashion as a Christian, anyone, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, or otherwise, who loves and trusts Jesus Christ as their great God and Savior. On the other hand, Hodge candidly points out that there are some grievous and destructive errors in Roman Catholic teaching, as he understands it. And this is what we need to do in our dialogue today is to be honest about our disagreements as well as honest enough to see where we actually agree. The fact is that bad doctrine can have devastating consequences. Now, we are saved by Jesus Christ, not by having the right doctrine about how we are saved by Jesus Christ. There's uh, no theology exam at the pearly gates. Good thing too, I think most of us who are Christians would fail. But a misleading doctrine nevertheless can mislead. Now if the Catholic Church's doctrine of salvation and justification is in important respects, unbiblical and misleading, as Protestants historically have affirmed and as I I'm convinced is, in fact, the case, then there is good reason to be concerned about the salvation of those Catholics who, as a result of these misleading teachings, may miss the gospel. So I don't want to minimize that concern that Protestants historically have had because I share it. Again, though, let me repeat that we are not saved by having the right doctrine of salvation. Protestants and Calvinists often fall into this category, I should say, as one who is one, Protestants who presume that they are saved because they affirm the right doctrine of salvation are in big trouble themselves. You think you're going to be saved because you can pass that theology exam? Uh, You're very much mistaken. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by our adherence to a creed, or a confession, but to Jesus Christ. Still, the scriptures teach us doctrine for a reason. It's incumbent upon us to pay attention to sound doctrine, especially as it relates to the gospel of salvation, lest we mislead others or ourselves. Now, the Protestant doctrine of salvation that I'm going to be defending this morning is not the opinion of one man, say Martin Luther or John Calvin, as uh, much in respect as I hold those gentlemen, nor is it some general vague idea about what the gospel is that is shared by Bible-believing Protestants. But rather, I propose to defend the doctrine of salvation that is common to the historic confessions of the major Protestant denominations, dating from the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. I limit it to that period because after that time, Protestantism is infected with a mortal disease known as liberalism, which denies the supernatural character of Jesus Christ and of the work of salvation that Jesus Christ does and which denies the reliability of scripture. A disease, by the way, which has also infected many segments of Roman Catholicism. Now these historic Protestant confessions are of various denominations. Lutheran confessions such as the Augsburg Confession 1530, the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, the Formula of Concord, 1576, the Reformed or Calvinistic confessions, especially the Belgic Confession, 1561, the Second Helvetic Confession, 1566, most of you probably haven't even heard of some of these, and uh, admittedly my favorite, the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1647. The Anglican Church has exactly the same gospel, the same doctrine of salvation in the 39 Articles of the Church of England, dating from 1571. And you find basically the same teaching in the Methodist Articles of Religion sometime later in 1784. The differences among these confessions on the doctrine of salvation are so minor that they're probably of interest only to theologians such as myself and Dr. Hahn. Now, There's a great deal to be discussed in looking at the doctrine of salvation and of justification. I'm going to bring out four key points that are found throughout these confessions, sometimes more elaborately explained than in other cases, but consistently these four points emerge as crucial to the Protestant understanding of the doctrine of salvation and specifically of justification. First point is that we are saved solely Christo, that's Latin for, by Christ alone. We are saved by Christ alone. According to the Belgian Confession, it must needs follow either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or if all things are in him, then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides him would be too gross a blasphemy. For hence it would follow that Christ was but half a savior. And that's the Belgian confession. Now, of course, Roman Catholics and Protestants agree Jesus Christ is the Savior. But what is distinctive about the Protestant understanding of Christ's role as Savior is that, specifically with regard to justification, most clearly, Protestants insist that our righteousness, our right standing with God, is entirely and solely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That Christ alone is our righteousness. And that this means exactly what it sounds like it means, that our righteousness, that is our personal moral uprightness, our personal righteous character, our own righteous good works or attitudes, really are not the basis for our standing as children of God, as forgiven by God, as accepted by God in his mercy into his family. A biblical text that perhaps brings out the point that Protestants are trying to make is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Paul, the apostle, speaking about giving up his confidence in his own righteousness as a Jew under the law, says, "...but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Historically, Protestants understand Paul here to be saying that the righteousness which I enjoy in my relationship to God through Jesus Christ is Christ's righteousness imputed to me or reckoned to me or placed to my account, credited to me as my righteousness, even though I did not originate it, I did not produce it, and I can't even live up to it in this life. So that is what Protestants historically have understood in their affirmation that salvation and justification are by Christ alone. Second, Protestants affirm that we are saved and justified by grace alone. You often hear the Latin phrase sola gratia, by grace alone. Now again, in Roman Catholic theology, Historically, salvation is also understood to be the work of God's grace. And I'm sure that uh, Scott and other Catholics would even go so far as to say, by grace alone. But the way Protestants understand this confession of salvation by grace alone is distinctive. We understand the Roman Catholics to teach, maybe We'll get some clarification on this, but we understand the Roman Catholic Church historically to teach that the reason why grace saves us is at least in part due to the fact that grace is able to produce in us good works of our own, not good works that we do in our own power, but good works that indeed are our good works, and it is at least in part on the basis of the reality of those good works that we can be considered saved. Protestants, on the other hand, hold that if we are saved by grace alone, then our works, not just the works we did before we became Christians or as non-Christians, but the works that we perform even as believers in Jesus Christ, imbued by God's grace, these works contribute nothing to our standing with God. They do not contribute to our salvation. They are instead the fruit of a saved relationship with God. The second Helvetic Confession, for example, says, and I quote, For we are saved by grace and by the benefit of Christ alone. Works do necessarily proceed from faith, but salvation is improperly attributed to them, which is most properly ascribed to grace. Then the Confession goes on to quote Romans 11.6. In Romans 11.6, Paul has this to say, If you have a Bible, it's okay if you turn to them, these passages with us. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now that last part is crucial to understand the Protestant concern about the Catholic view of salvation. Protestants are concerned, and not just about the Catholic view of salvation, but various Protestant deformed understandings as well, that introduce work somehow into the equation as part of what constitutes us as saved people. Protestants historically in, its, in their confessions have said, if you do that, grace is no longer grace. Again, we're not denying the importance of works, we're not denying the necessity of works as the result of a truly saved relationship with God in Jesus Christ, but we're saying that works do not contribute to that standing. Works do not support that standing; otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Perhaps the most famous New Testament passage quoted to make this point is Ephesians 2, verses 8. Through ten, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Some people, of course, in their hurry, only quote 8 and 9, but I'm going to do all three verses here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The Protestant understands this passage to be saying this. We are saved by grace, through faith, unto good works. And if you get that order out of whack, Protestants are concerned that you will detract from the grace of God, distract people from the grace of God in their lives, and people will begin to trust in their works rather than in God's grace. Again, we are saved by grace, by grace alone. By the way, the word alone isn't here, but it's clearly implied. come back to that point later. We are saved by God's grace exclusively, and we do not contribute to it. But that grace is not just applied indiscriminately to the entire population of earth. It's applied to those people who have faith because God creates that faith in them by his gift. It's a gift of God. Even the faith is the work of God's grace. And this grace does not leave people unchanged. It produces in them the desire and the ability to do the good works which God created them to do. And if those good works do not show up, one has every right to question the genuineness of the alleged faith. So we are saved by Christ alone, and we're saved by grace alone. Third, Protestants affirm that we are justified, and saved sola fide, by faith alone, or through faith alone, sometimes it's put. This is probably the most controversial and contentious aspect of the Protestant view of justification from a Roman Catholic perspective. In affirming that we are justified, through faith alone. Again, Protestants are not uh, saying that the justified person need not do any works. We're not saying that a person who claims to have faith but has no works is saved. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love." End of quote. So the Westminster Confession faith, which is representative of all the Protestant confessions on this point, affirms that we are justified through faith alone. That is, faith is the only instrument of our coming into that standing with God where we are considered right before God. It is our faith which connects us to God in that way, and only faith. But this faith through which we are justified is never alone, but it is always accompanied by all the other saving graces of God in Jesus Christ, including the new birth, including the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Uh, the beginning of the work of sanctification, conforming us to the image of God's beloved Son, and so forth. All of these things accompany the grace of justification. So if you have heard, Protestants, that it isn't necessary for a saved or justified person to produce good works, it's recommended but not required, you've been listening to a deformed interpretation of the Protestant gospel. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism, to reinforce this point, says that it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of righteousness. In other words, faith doesn't merely acknowledge intellectually that Jesus is the Savior. Faith implants us into Christ. Faith rests on Christ, trusts in Christ. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding between Catholics and Protestants on this point. It's very easy for both sides, and I'm not saying this is only a misunderstanding on one side, to hear faith alone and think, well, that means all you have to do is subscribe to the doctrine. All you have to do is mentally agree that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Just sign on the dotted line. That's all it takes. But that's not what Protestants mean, and that's not what Protestants understand Paul or other New Testament writers to mean when they talk about being saved or justified on the basis of faith. Rather, we understand faith to be a commitment to Jesus Christ as our Savior, a faith that is a commitment of the heart, a trust, a reliance, placing our confidence, our hope in him alone. Now, folks, if you have that kind of faith, you're going to want to do what Christ wants you to do. You're going to want to obey Christ. You will follow Christ as a disciple and not merely intellectually agree, oh, yeah, he's Jesus, the Son of God. Yeah, I know that. I was taught that in Sunday school. But rather, you will be living your life for your Savior. So the Protestant view of justification through faith alone is not easy believism. It is not, uh, just say after me, repeat the magic words, and on your way you may go. It is rather, stop living your life as if you were God, as if you could justify yourself by your own good works, and put your faith in the only one who can save you, in Jesus Christ. Give your life to him. Protestants, when they say that, need to be sure that they mean it literally that we are, in fact, entrusting our souls to Jesus Christ. Again, on this doctrine of what faith means, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So really, from a Protestant perspective, the whole doctrine of salvation and of justification flows from the single affirmation Jesus Christ son of god savior the fourth point is that we are brought to faith and sustained in faith primarily now not exclusively so this is not another only this is this is a primarily through the ministry of the word now in roman catholic theology and in Roman Catholic practice. Historically, it is primarily the sacraments through which faith is created and sustained in the life of the Catholic. The understanding is that the word, of course, must also be there, but primarily it is the sacraments. Uh, Justifying grace is imparted in Roman Catholic thought in baptism, and it is sustained through the sacraments, especially of penance and the Eucharist. Now, although Protestants affirm the validity and the importance of baptism and the Eucharist in the Christian life and worship, and we affirm that they do help to sustain our faith and to to help us develop in our faith, Protestants affirm that it is primarily the Word of God which creates and sustains faith in the life of a Christian scripture text that's perhaps a, a, a very popular one in this point is Romans 10, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, that is the word about Christ, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. The King James Version says the word of God, but of course it really is the same thing, because that's what the Word of God is about. It's about Christ. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, the Word of Christ. So Protestants historically affirm, as again we find in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that the grace of faith is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer it is increased and strengthened. I've only gotten through about uh, half my presentation, and I have about four minutes left, but I do want to say a few closing words about the biblical basis of this doctrine of justification. You'll find the primary text for Protestants on this point in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Now, we're probably going to get into this a little bit more in the dialogue part, but the epistle of Paul to the Romans is Paul's magnum opus it is his major work of exposition of his gospel he makes that quite clear at the beginning and the end of the book and so it is natural to turn to this book uh, by the new testament's greatest theologian uh, and look at what he has to say about the doctrine of salvation i cannot even begin to get into all of what i'd like to on this point but let me draw your attention to a couple of texts romans chapter one Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. From start to finish, the Christian life is a life of faith, and insofar as my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters understand and affirm that, I count them as Christians. But this is the critical point that I wish to emphasize here, is that the gospel is a message of salvation for everyone who believes. Again, not merely intellectually agrees with the doctrine, but who believes in Jesus Christ, who trusts in Jesus Christ. Romans 28 uh, One of the most hotly debated texts between Catholics and Protestants. Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now remember I mentioned Ephesians 2 says that we're saved by grace. doesn't actually add the word alone, but it's implied. Protestants historically have maintained the word alone is also implied here, that we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Now, again, that alone, Protestants do not understand that alone to mean you don't have any good works to show for your faith. What they mean is the justification is based on the faith, not on the works. The works flow from the life of faith. One more passage, I think I'm just about out of time, and that is Romans 4, verses 3 through 5. What does the scripture say? And this is about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So Paul is understood here by Protestants telling us, stop trying to work your way into justification and start believing your way just as Abraham trusted God, believed God, and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. Thank you very much.
6: Thank you, Richie. And thank you, Rob. I'm very grateful for this dialogue. I'm especially grateful that it is a dialogue and not a debate. You might wonder, what's the difference? In a debate, it's like this. If I want your thoughts, I'll give them to you. Whereas a dialogue is designed to be an exchange of ideas based upon diplomacy. You might know how Reader's Digest defines diplomacy as the art of letting someone else have your own way. So pray for spiritual diplomacy here. In any case, it's so important to hear from both sides before forming our judgments. It reminds me of a story of a priest who was traveling late one night on a bus He was alone, and then the door opened, and this poor drunk stumbled in. He sat down on the seat right in front of the priest, picked up an old newspaper, sat up straight, moaned and groaned. A moment later, he turned around and asked the priest. He said, Father, do you you know what causes arthritis? The priest couldn't resist the opportunity to set this slob straight. Yes, too much drinking, loose living. Carousing with degenerates. That's what causes arthritis. Oh, the drunk said, I I was just reading in the paper here that the Pope's got arthritis. (laughs) So one needs to be careful before forming judgments prematurely. (laughs) So instead of launching into a critique, an assault, or attack, I'd like to build on the common ground that has been laid clearly and truthfully by Rob about faith and justification, and then address the best way we can go about handling our differences. We have heard that faith is our consent to God. Faith is our reception of God's life. Faith is my consent to God who opens himself to me and offers a covenant through Christ. It's a lot like a marriage between two persons that's established by exchanging consent. But can you picture on the wedding day the bride's reaction when she hears the groom announce afterwards, Honey, we were married by consent alone. You should probably wonder, what does that mean? On the one hand, if my new groom simply means consent as opposed to coercion, okay, fine, that's true, of course, and somewhat obvious, a bit one-sided in the legal direction perhaps, but uh, no problem. On the other hand, if he meant by consent alone, Okay, now you've got my consent. You got the wedding in the church. Your parents were there. You should be happy. Now you better be satisfied because my consent is really all. You asked for all you needed and all I give. That would be a falsification of that to which he gave consent because in the covenant of marriage, you consent to love, you consent to a covenant of love that is mutual, that is exclusive, that is permanent, and that is fruitful. And that is an analogy to what faith consents to with Christ. Our soul enters into a nuptial union, a marital covenant with Christ the groom, a union that is permanent, mutual, exclusive, and fruitful. Now, I admit that there are some guys out there probably who mean the second thing when they say consent alone. And so, faith alone can be an acceptable expression, but at the same time, we ought to be willing to acknowledge that it's ambiguous, potentially misleading, and so not entirely helpful. Either the alone in faith functions as an adverb that modifies the verb justify, or else it functions as an adjective and it modifies the word faith. If the sola in sola fide, if the alone, functions as an adverb, modifying the verb justify, it means that we're only justified by faith. Without faith, you cannot be justified. And this is a proposition that every Roman Catholic can affirm and must affirm, and not simply affirm, but sing aloud with St. Thomas, who gave us a line in a great hymn that goes sola fide sufficit, only faith can suffice. And it's a hymn sung with reference to Christ's presence in the Holy Eucharist, because the mind cannot deduce Christ's presence, nor can the senses empirically verify it. Only faith suffices. And so Catholics can join with Protestants in affirming this adverbial sense of sola fide, not by way of reluctant concession, I should add, but by joyful co-affirmation. But in that case, sola fide is true, but it's not new, much less revolutionary. On the other hand, if the alone is meant to function as an adjective modifying the noun faith, faith by itself, in that case, sola fide is new, but it's not true. Rob has clarified what the Westminster Confession and the Reformed Calvinist tradition affirms clearly faithfully, precisely, and I'm glad, because this is substantial common ground. Now, there are other Protestants who understand the alone in an adjectival sense, and we might be able to address that as well, but I think to further the dialogue here, we're going to focus on what we should do with this adverbial sense of sola fide, only through faith are we justified. In any case, I do think it's a little bit like the bridegroom who said consent alone because of its ambiguity. Why do I bring it up in these terms? Well, because a divorce has occurred almost five centuries ago. A divorce occurred in the 1500s between Protestants and Catholics, and like all such cases, both parties tend to blame each other. And in truth, both sides are right, which implies both sides are also wrong. Both sides share faults. And now almost five centuries and 20,000 denominations later, we have to ask ourselves a hard question. Was the divorce a real solution? Or has the solution proven to be itself worse than the problem? like cutting off your head to stop a nosebleed. It's proven to be a cure that kills. It kills our witness to the world. It kills our fulfillment of Christ's high priestly prayer, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I am in thee, that the world may believe. The world now has reasons to doubt because of this great divorce. It kills our efforts in battling countless evils as mutual allies as well. And I'm grateful for Rob sharing that quotation from Charles Hodge. I have some other statements from some favorites of his and mine. Here's a statement by Abraham Kuyper in his famous Princeton lectures that were later published as Lectures on Calvinism in which Piper said Calvin in his day already acknowledged that as against the spirit from the great deep, he considered Romish believers to be allies. A so-called orthodox Protestant need only perceive immediately that what we have in common with Rome concerns precisely those fundamentals of our Christian creed now most fiercely assaulted by the modern spirit. In this conflict now, Rome is not an antagonist but stands beside us as she recognizes and maintains the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, the cross as an atoning sacrifice, in the scriptures as the word of God, the Ten Commandments, and so much more. Therefore, let me ask, if Romish theologians take up the sword to do valiant and skillful battle against the same tendency that we ourselves mean to fight to the death, is it not the part of wisdom to accept their valuable help? And then the founder of Westminster Seminary, where Rob is doing his doctoral studies, wrote, how great it is the common heritage that unites the Roman Catholic Church with its maintenance of the authority of Scripture and its acceptance of the great early creeds to devout Protestants today. We would not indeed obscure the difference which divides us from Rome. The gulf is profound indeed, but profound as it is, it seems almost trifling compared to the abyss which stands between us and many ministers of our own church. Those were the words of J. Gresham Machen speaking about some of the Presbyterian confers that gave him so much trouble. In any case, the question remains, was this divorce absolutely necessary? It was if the Protestant conception of sola fide, faith alone, is Beyond rehabilitation, simply unbiblical and contrary to Catholic doctrine, which I don't believe it is. And I don't believe that Rob thinks so. And I don't think that's what Rob thinks. On the other hand, someone could say that the divorce was absolutely necessary because the Catholic conception is anti biblical and totally beyond any hope of rehabilitation or even discussion, which. Rob may insist upon, but I'd be surprised. I don't expect it, because that's generally the position taken by professional anti Catholics like Jack Chick or Bart Brewer or James White. But our differences are real, and they're not small. But are they absolutely and necessarily irreconcilable? I don't believe that they are necessarily irreconcilable. But I do believe they will continue to seem like they are so long as we keep up the tone of the discussion of the last four or five centuries. Much like divorced spouses who spend most of their time arguing over who gets the house and who gets the car and who gets the furniture. You get the house and I get the cars. If you get work, and we get faith. You get tradition, and we have scripture. You get merit, and we have grace. We get justification. You got sanctification. You got the Pope. We got Billy Graham. We got Mother Teresa, but we got K. Arthur. You'll know her work. It's good. We've got Notre Dame. We've got Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm not sure which one I would take. <laughs> By the way, I say that with great fraternal affection for very godly men at Dallas, friends like uh, Eugene Merrill and Old Testament and others as well. It's great to be in their city discussing this. These are real differences, yes. But differences, I believe, that can be explained in terms of emphasis, different approaches, different perspectives, and widely varying concerns, but not necessarily mutually exclusive. This is especially true when real differences are rooted in real misunderstandings like they usually are in most marital squabbles. The differences reflect a certain amount of pride, a certain amount of competitiveness, and a great deal of deep hurt from the past. Like many spouses, Kimber and I may be locked in some disagreement for hours, sometimes even days, generally, until one of us has the humility and love to look at it from the perspective of the other person's deepest concern. It may not be the concern that I think is the most important, but I never find her concern to be invalid. But seldom, in the midst of the squabbling, do I affirm the importance and validity of her concern. What I'm saying cannot serve as an excuse for sentimental, gushy, warm, fuzzy feelings of nostalgia, appeasement, equivocation, or ambiguity. In fact, we cannot afford to ignore the very real differences, just as we cannot afford to exaggerate them or misunderstand them any longer. On the other hand, this doesn't call for just simply more cold, dispassionate, impersonal, hard, cold logic following Spock on Star Trek. We just need more deductive intellectuals debating these things in public performances to big crowds. As much as intellectuals like me enjoy those occasions. No like... Any estranged couple, what is needed here is hard but careful, uncompromising, faithful, discerning dialogue, not only to speak the truth in love, but to hear and to listen to the truth on the other side that is spoken in love. Not simply to disagree agreeably, but to listen from the heart as well as from the head. And to allow ourselves to feel the force of what the other person is saying and then articulate it back so that that other person recognizes the fact that we have allowed ourselves to feel as well as to think through what their fears and concerns might be. And from 17 years of marriage with five kids, I tell you, it's never easy. Now what do you expect it to be after almost five centuries? I am convinced that it is our birthright as believers to have both faith and works, scripture and tradition, grace and merit, justification and sanctification, and all of the rest. They belong to Catholics, and they belong to evangelical Protestants because they belong to Jesus Christ, and we belong to him. If Rob was just simply a separated person then we could treat each other simply as enemies, even though I'd still be obliged to love them because Jesus said, love your enemies. But it's the fact that we are brothers who are separated that makes it absolutely essential for us to figure out if there are ways for us as brothers who are separated to minimize that separation, and then with God's help perhaps even to overcome it. We both love Christ, we long to know and do God's word and to please the Father and to live for his family. And as brothers in Christ, we need to acknowledge that our unity is greater than our differences and then build upon it. We also need to see our differences for what they are in view of this separated fraternity. They're a tragedy, but even more than a tragedy, the separation is a luxury that we can no longer afford especially in facing a culture of death or the rising tide of Islam, secularism, radical feminism, the breakdown of the family, and now in recent months, the emergence of a new hardened communist China, what one expert just called the other day, America's new enemy for a new century, glory. We can no longer afford the luxury of allowing this separation to continue without addressing its deepest causes from a heart of compassion, love, and discernment. If we are in any way brothers who are separated, then what should be our deepest desire and longing? What would the Father in heaven think of brothers who can't eat together, who can't live together, and who don't even really care, and who only want to get together to argue? Now, I'm a father of five kids, and I, I, been there, done that. (laughs) I know what it's like to see brothers, sons treating each other that way. Being Catholic myself, married with those kids, but also being a former anti-Catholic who took a very hard line stand against the Catholic Church as an anti-church, and being a former staunch evangelical Calvinist, I admit that I've got all sorts of vested interests in seeking reconciliation, but then who doesn't? But I don't think the answer is going to come through some sort of mesmerizing talk, some sort of uh, verbal hypnosis. All you Protestants, just close your eyes and repeat after me. There's no place like Rome. There's no place like Rome. <laughs> Manny M is waiting. (laughs) It won't come through hypnosis. It will come through hard, long dialogue. The same way Kimber and I work out our big differences, by shifting our focus away from our differences, but without ignoring them either, by concentrating on our common ground and our common concerns and then by rethinking our differences in terms of those larger common commitments. This is especially important when Kimberly and I have fixated upon certain words or phrases that I use or that she uses, that we've used in the past to clobber each other, to hurt each other, to make our point at the other's expense. In this case, that's been going on for nearly five centuries. Not because there's no truth in the slogans like sola fide, but because they no longer serve the cause of truth or the cause of Christ. They they mainly increase the potential for more misunderstanding. Now, mind you, I'm not some cheery-faced optimist. Oh, if we can just get the two of them back together in each other's arms, dancing to some medieval pre-Reformational tune, oh, they'll be happy ever after. No way. But I'm also not a pessimist. Unless we were looking at this from strictly a human perspective. Because if we're looking to find some human means to do it, humanly speaking, there's no solution. But we're not dealing only in human terms. We're dealing with divine truth, divine wisdom, divine love. We're dealing with God's own family. An omnipotent father capable and desirous to do with us what is humanly impossible for us but only in truth which is the only basis for unity and the only basis for love because the father opposes the proud God takes down the proud even when they're right God opposes the proud even when they're right and I might add especially when they're right because what it is they're right about is the truth of love and so to present the truth of love in pride and arrogance is self-destructive. Back to this main and substantial point that Rob has so em- emphasized so adequately faith is my consent to God's love but faith as he pointed out is also a gift from God. It isn't simply a gift of God's favor and mercy whereby he blocked out my sins and forgives my transgressions. It is a gift of God's own life. It is an extension of the inner life of the Blessed Trinity from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. We are reborn. We become new creations, and faith is the first act of a newborn child of God. And through that, we come into the reality of the Father-Son bond that has existed from eternity. Within this mystery, we love to affirm, but seldom contemplate the Blessed Trinity. Justifying faith is not the result of mere human effort. Faith is not what we do so we don't have to do anything else. But it is what we do when nothing else we do on our own works. In other words, faith is not a resignation from effort, but it does call for my resignation to the fact that my efforts Aren't enough. Faith is not mere intellectual assent to propositions simply because we agree with them or because they match our experience. Though we should agree and though they should match our experience, faith is essentially the consent of my will given to my Father because He is God, so I'll believe as true whatever He says because He says it. And He is God and He is my Father and He has recreated me in Christ. Through the Holy Spirit. So the object of my faith is proposition. secondarily. It is a person primarily. It is the Father who sent the Son to give me the Spirit so I can believe. The act of faith, then, is not only assent of the intellect. It is the consent of the will to the person who addresses my mind. Faith is a gift of God, the Holy Spirit, which enables us, then, to give our consent not just once but continuously, not just passively, but actively. We consent to our covenant with Christ between my soul and its groom, between a sinner and a savior, between a son and a father through the eldest brother, between us and our family. Christ paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And that's why the Father sent the Son. And on my own, apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit, I'm nothing but an outcast rebel. And unknowingly, even a child of the devil. You Catholics should recognize this from the baptismal liturgy where you have prayers of exorcism prayed over the candidate about to be baptized, even with infants. I know that poses a problem for my Baptist brethren. but In any case, on my own, I'm an outcast rebel. Who might try to purchase my former dad's home and estate. But salvation is not something sold at an auction to the highest bidder. And besides, I don't have the funds sufficient to buy even a single piece of furniture. Salvation is an inheritance given to and shared by family members. And the gift of family membership is given by God as a gift that is free, but it is not cheap. Justification, then, is the Father's declaration of my family standing, my legal status in the covenant family of God, by virtue of what Christ has done 2,000 years ago and because of what the Holy Spirit has done in recreating me, in giving me a new birth as a child of God. Okay, so... What am I proposing? I am proposing, in essence, that we Catholics need to acknowledge our failures and shortcomings. We need to become more thoroughly rooted in Scripture. We need to become more grounded in the Trinity. We need to become more active in authentic ecumenical dialogue with brothers and sisters in Christ who share so much. And at the same time, I would suggest that Protestants ought to rethink caricatures and proof texts, and that we can do this together. This misunderstanding is no less a problem for Catholics than Protestants. There's no less legalism among us than easy believism among them, and actually there's a lot of cross-pollination
4: going in both directions. Both spouses have things to apologize for and
6: then
3: work to change.
6: The Catholic position was summed up admirably by Pope John Paul II in very top of splendor, quoting St. Augustine when he said, God gave us the law so that we might seek his grace. Then God gave us grace so that we might be empowered to keep the law. God gave us the law, especially in the Old Testament where human nature had not yet received from the incarnate Christ the power of God through the Spirit to do what is otherwise humanly impossible for fallen men and women to accomplish. We couldn't fulfill the moral law on our own power. That also explained why God assigned certain ceremonial rituals because those rituals signified man's incapacity to fulfill even the moral law on his own power. So as a childhood ditty, once said, the law was given so grace we'd seek, then grace was given
4: so the law we'd keep. So the grace of God comes to us through Jesus Christ to,
6: so that we can obey the law of God, we can keep the commandments. But grace does not make obedience easy. Grace simply makes obedience possible. And without the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Council of Orange, the Council of Trent, Vatican I, Vatican II, John Paul and Veritatis, Splendor, all affirm. Without that supernatural grace flooding our souls, recreating us, we don't have a chance of fulfilling the covenant and keeping the moral law. Grace makes obedience not easy, but possible. And so for the Catholic as well as the Protestant, we can affirm sola fide. It is a biblical concept. Sola fide is right, just to begin wrapping up here, sola fide is right if sola is an adverb, wrong if it's an adjective, Sola fide is a novel error, if it's an adjective. It's a patristic commonplace. It's a medieval view. It is a Catholic dogma, if it's an adverb. If sola fide is adverbial, then it means that there is no justification without faith, but if it's an, an adjective, it means there's no need for works in addition to faith. If sola is an adverb, then it applies to justification at every point, along the way of the Christian life, and we're going to get back to that question. If sola is an adverb, then it applies to justification at every point along the way of the Christian life, not just at the beginning. If so, then justification is, like the faith that it's based on, an ongoing process, past, present, and future. Denying that both justification and faith involve an ongoing process puts one on a collision course with Paul in Romans 4, where he cites Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 when God declared him to be justified. But that's in Genesis 15, many years after Abraham had begun walking with God in faith, as Hebrews 11.9 points out. So Abraham is declared just in Genesis 15, not at the moment he began to believe, but well along the way in his life as a believer. Paul's argument then is that he was justified in 15 long before he was circumcised in 17, so the Judaizers are wrong in telling you Roman Christians that you've got to be circumcised if you want to be justified like Abraham was. Abraham is proof that isn't necessary. I would conclude by saying that sola fide ought to be mutually accepted and then retired from active duty. Because the only time the Holy Spirit inspired a New Testament writer to use the phrase faith alone is when the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle James to write, a man is not justified by faith alone, but by works. But of course, James meant alone in the adjectival sense. And in Romans 3.28, Paul never said a man is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law not until a German translator inserted that word into Romans 3.28 and so I think it needs to be retired from active duty James uses justification and faith much like Paul but he uses works in a way totally unlike Paul when James speaks of works he says clothing the naked feeding the hungry when Paul speaks of works he's opposing those Judaizers who, who wish to circumcise these new Gentile believers. So, Paul uses works against the Judaizers who are trying to get these folks circumcised. James uses the word works against these antinomians, these people who are anti law, who are trying to convince people that salvation can be had apart from acts of love. In sum, the way out of our dilemma, if we're humbled enough to accept it, is to follow Paul and James and the Council of Trent, Session 6, Chapter 4. I can only be what I am. I want to close with a, with a brief story that's true, and it illustrates what we share. Everybody felt it, a moment of eerie silence, a low rumble, and then the ground began shaking. Buildings swayed and buckled and then collapsed like houses of cards. Less than four minutes later, over 30,000 were dead from an 8.2 earthquake that rocked the nearly flattened Armenia in 1989. In the muddled chaos, a distressed father bolted through the winding streets, leading to the school where his son had gone earlier that morning. The man couldn't stop thinking about the promise he'd given his son many times. No matter what happens, Armand, I'll always be there. He reached the site where the school had been, but saw only a pile of rubble. He just stood there at first, fighting back tears, and then he took off stumbling over debris, running toward the east corner where he knew his son's classroom had been. With nothing but his bare hands, he started digging, desperately pulling up bricks and pieces of wall plaster while others just stood by watching in forlorn disbelief. He even heard someone growl, Just forget it, mister. They're all dead. The father looked up, flustered, and replied, You can grumble or you can help me lift these bricks, but only a few pitched in. And most of them gave up once their muscles began to ache. But the man couldn't stop thinking about his son. So he kept digging and digging for hours, 12 hours, 18 hours, 36 hours, until finally, into the 38th hour, he heard a muffled groan from under a piece of wallboard. He seized the board. He pulled it back, and he cried, "Armand!" And from the darkness came a slight shaking voice, Papa! Other weak voices began calling out as the young survivors stirred beneath the still uncleared rubble, gasps and shouts of bewildered relief came from the few onlookers and parents who remained. They found 14 of the 33 students still alive. When Armand finally emerged, he tried to help dig until all his surviving classmates were out. Everybody standing there heard him as he turned to his friends and said, see, I told you my father wouldn't forget us. Our father won't forget us either. He'll dig us out of our sins, and God willing,
3: he'll dig us out of our separation. Thank you. All right. That's the first half of that that debate. Catholic versus... Protestant justification slash salvation, Scott Hahn versus Robert M. Bowman, Jr. Interesting. Very interesting to me. When I listen to that Catholic guy, very emotional, I feel it. I feel the emotions. Feel it. That last story touched me to the bone. But Papa, who is Papa? For the Roman Catholic Church? The Pope. Notice that he put Paul and James and the Council of Trent as the way to go about doing works. What are works for the Roman Catholic Church? Is it doing good for others? solely, As James Paul actually says, or is it taking of the sacraments Obeying the papacy, obeying Rome, men, my man. What is the truth that he's saying? Well, you notice he mentioned the ecumenical movement, ecumenism. What does that mean? That means that Pope, or papacy, Rome, Roman Catholic Church wants to bring us all back in under. Her arms, not Christ's arms, her arms. Very deceptive, very good. He's very good at what he does. Amazing. Touched me in my heart over and over. But I have to use scriptures. I have to question what they're doing, what they're saying. What is their real motives? What happened? The Vatican II back in the 1960s. What's the real motive behind all this? Where in the Bible does it say I'm supposed to do all these things? Please show me. Oh, isn't it interesting that he said that Mormon Catholics have to get back to the Bible? The whole Bible or just those scriptures like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists used to justify their false religion. These are very good questions, I think. Not all of them, but very good questions. And that man was a very good deliverer of, of Jesuit sophistry, casketry. Here we go. Rome. This is Rome. Trotsky was a Jew, was Jewish. And it was used by the Jesuits of Rome to kill 12 million Russian Orthodox Christians. Historically the Roman Catholic Church has relentlessly persecuted Orthodox Christians. After they split from papal church in the 11th century, let's be clear about something. The Orthodox Christians believe in salvation through the sacraments and they revere Mary. Now this is what Rome is too. They believe that salvation is through the sacraments. Yes, you need to be a fact faith in Jesus Christ. But it's not good enough. You need a salvation through sacraments. And they revere Mary and their, as their intercessor, which is not biblical. And so they have the same beliefs as Catholics, except they do not revere the Pope as
4: their leader yet. That's from uh, David Nicaio. He does some great work. Yeah, I, there's never, Dave, okay. I saw a, this post on Facebook and it brings up
3: an interesting topic. We can see a lot of persecution of people called Christians, especially in the Middle East. So let's be clear about what their beliefs are to discern whether they are followers of Christ. This is not an article of judgment, but rather simply aims to clarify who these people groups are. Most people call Christians in Europe, or Russia, or Muslim countries are either part of the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. 1.2 billion Catholics who call themselves Christians believe that they must follow seven sacraments to be saved through the Catholic Church. By the way, the Catholic Church says that if you don't belong to her, you're not saved.
4: So, Throw
3: out the window. Throw out the window. As far as uh, saved by grace, faith in Jesus Christ, they confess their sins to a priest, not Jesus. They pray to Mary as their intercessor and redeemer. That is not true salvation. I agree with you, David. The Orthodox Church broke away from the Catholic Church in 1054 A.D. And they believe, they do believe that they must follow the sacraments to be saved, and they revere Mary as their intercessor. And this is this is not true salvation either. Since the split in 1054 A.D., the Roman Catholic Church has constantly persecuted the Orthodox Christians. And you can see in this picture, they have a picture, yes. They are praying with rosary beads in their hands, which tells us that they're either Catholic or Orthodox. Any uh, any persecution of them is horrible, and it is unjust. We shouldn't be persecuting either, any of us, as far as, you know, physical, spiritual, religiously, whatever, mentally. In many ways that persecution happens but we need to discern the truth about what is happening around us our messiah knows who are his and we cannot discern that but it is important to understand what the different christian factions really believe for the enemy has deceived many people into believing in false
4: christian message in a false christian message It says here, during, uh, the killing during the Crusades were by the Roman Catholic Church. Satan loves
3: it when people called Christians commit terrible acts because it,
4: is, it causes the world to shun true Christianity. The Roman Empire worshipped
3: her as Sybil. The Roman Church just changed her name to Mary. The Vatican is built on the old Roman Temple of Sybil, and where they used to offer, uh, no doubt still offer, human sacrifices to her. How can we we be with you? We can't be with them. We can't unite with them. Saint wants us to, but we can't. And there's a lot of deceived people, children of God in that church, in the Orthodox Church. They need to come out. And I know it's scary. It's not fun being alone. But we have Christ. So not really. Are we alone? Not really. Now back to this article that I, uh, when I was interrupted. I'm sorry about that. I was planning to do things a little differently, but you know, I've got to go with the flow sometimes.
4: Uh, the Europe is run by the Jesuits. Let's see where I'm at here with this. I kind of lost my place. Okay, so we're talking about this, this
3: uh, depopulation that Gen 21 started in the Netherlands. Okay, with this. With advanced knowledge of the British victory, Nathan Rothschild spread lies that the British had been defeated, which caused a crash in the value of the British government bonds while panicked English investors sold their life savings. Nathan Ruffield, Rothschilds brought up, uh, bought up their bonds for the pennies on the dollar, and one foul swoop, the Demon Brothers had double-crossed the English masses. They received this time control of half the world's wealth, including the Bank of England. And then in this video, if you ever get it, uh, there's lots of Uh, the article there's lots of videos you know you press on the video you can watch the video so Uh, the Bank of England confirmed officially a new Dutch monarchy the Congress of Vienna as part of the rearranged Europe after the fall of Napoleon Bonaparte, the House of Orange Nassau were given what is present day the Netherlands and Belgium to govern as United Kingdom of Netherlands, the Duke, Grand Duke of Luxembourg. In 1822, the, the Duke of the General Bank, the Dutch General Bank, was founded by King William I of the Netherlands. And the two years later, in 1824, the British transferred the Isle Island of Biliton, Indonesia, into Dutch hands, despite its rich resources. So the Dutch. King William, first established Dutch colony bank and promoted and developed trade and shipping and agriculture. So we read all that, and then we got into the... Uh, sorry, okay, okay. So now we're going to start talking about this. NCF, which is the Dutch Cocaine Factory, the Netherlands uh, Cocaine Factory. After the uh, Belgium Revolution, in 1830, the Dutch General Bank became Belgium. I heard the French named Society General de Belgique, or something like that, and the year 1900, the Dutch colonial bank Queen uh, Wilhelmina, well, Helm I may not, yes, like that, founded the Dutch Cocaine Factory NCF in the Netherlands, Amsterdam.
4: They have a video,
3: which produced in the 20th century a large-scale cocaine out of the Dutch Indies, East Indies' grown cocoa plants. In 1910, the, N- the NCF factory has become the largest cocaine factory in the world. On 28 of July, 1914, began a global war centered in war- Europe, World War I, and lasted to 11 11th of November, 1918. It was predominantly called the World War or the Great War and involved all the world's great powers. During World War I, the Dutch cocaine factory, NCF, expanded and soldiers were drugged worldwide as fighting machines. Tablets were pressed in England and supplied to countries worldwide, including to the Germans. And this says, listen to interview English. Despite the Opium Act... Uh, just after World War One in 1919, Netherlands manufactured and exported further because of huge international markets with cocaine addicts they had created. World War I would actually happen according to the Benjamin Freeman video. One must be aware of the fact uh, the repetition of mistakes that were made in the past lies against in front of us. Uh, the lives of millions, if not billions of people, will once again be put in jeopardy, even worse as was the case in World War One and Two, The aim of the cartel was the same, to conquer and rule over um, Europe and America, and finally the rest of the world. <clears throat> this time, with a f- a fewer people in con- to control, less useless eaters, with all possible political, economic, and military resources, including mass poisoning, genocide. Uh, Wherefore, Agenda agenda 21, a false flag attack on the global people, comparable to Hitler's finances, who burned the Reichstag. After World War II, the Hitler cabinet conquered through the territory of the Netherlands with a Nazi Prince Bernhard... Zulipel, I don't know, Besterfield and his mother in law Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands as uh, implementers in collaboration with the with the Belgian Robert Rothschild and socialist Paul Henry Spake from whom father was good friends with the Jewish rothschild banking fa- family, Ashkenazi Jew, Zionists. Jointly, they lived in exile during World War II in England, Rothschild, where the Windsor supported the Nazis, and Prince Philip not only was trained in Hitler's youths, but his German brother-in-law, with whom he lived, all became high-ranking figures in the Nazi party. You'll forget the Jezows behind all of this. they implemented a hidden agenda to continue strengthening the Third Reich through the Netherlands in case Adolf Hitler and the financiers officially lost the war this to Ill- this too illegal expansion on the Dutch territory and continued Nazi government first through the uh ben uh, it's b e the Ben or something like that. Uh, B E N E L U uh, X. Thereafter, Europe, America, and finally the rest of the world. However, King uh, Leopold III of Belgium tortured these plans where John F. Kennedy, Robert Welch, and Eisenhower warned us about. King Leopold III refused to cooperate with these Nazis or Roman Catholics or Jesuits, don't forget, and therefore deliberately did not, f- did not fled, then uh, flee to England with the Dutch and the Belgian government. He has, he has written in January 1944 a political testament to be published in case he would not be in Belgium if the Allied forces were del- were liber- would liberate the country himself, uh, quote, Occupy. In the testament, he demanded an apology from the government in exile for the events of 1940 and has rejected the treaties they had signed in London. This means that King Leopold III posthumously rejected uh, the Bellinox Treaty an opportunity to rebuild Europe with independent countries based on the democratic law applicable before the treaty. Thereby, the Belgian King Leopold III shortly saved the world from the fascist takeover. Like his brother Albert I intended to do, they defeated Nazi-conquering Belgium, who took the Netherlands in hostage. I don't know about that list. From the Netherlands, they expanded Kurt Nazis across other parts of Europe. For the substructure, read our registered letter, uh, Dutch language, sent on the 3rd of October 2012 to the Belgium Constitutional Court. Proof of receipts. The Nazis strengthening further from Dutch territory. Read history. Therefore, they can dump any illegal chemical waste pesticide like Roundup and, and others uh, and genocidal mass poisoning of the earth and its inhabitants by spreading illegally their harmful chemicals on soil. Therefore, natural crops will no longer grow, except they engineered in harmful GM crops. Nazi companies like Monsanto, that eventually I believe was bought up by Blackwater, Whatever name it is now, are bleeding producers of genetically engineered GE um, seeds and their herbicide uh, gly- gly- glyphosate. Su- Gluff- okay. I, gly- sauce- I wonder if that's how I got my MS, my neurological damage from all this Roundup stuff and all this fertilizer which the mark is under the up Mar- 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 brand. The company also manufactured controversial products such as the insecticide DDT, or Agent Orange, and recombinant bovine uh, so, uh, somatotrophin. In the 1960s and 1970s, Monsanto was also one of the most important producers of Agent Orange, together with the, the Dutch company Philips Dufar, who first produced the highly toxic and carcinogenic Agent Orange in Nazi uh, Netherlands, then used between 1962 and 1971 during the Vietnam War, sprayed by the United States military 20 million gallon, U.S. gallons uh, looks like uh, 76 million liters of material containing chemical herbicides and defoliants mixed with jet fuel were deployed in Vietnam, eastern Laos, and parts of Cambodia as uh, of Operation Ranch Hand. Agent Orange is synonymous with the Vietnam War, and don't forget. This is also called the Spellman's War, and how involved the <clears throat> Roman Catholic Church was in all that. Of course, it's all Rome, Roman Empire, but you know, it's, most people will never see that because most people don't believe in what's really in front of their face. <clears throat> Agent Ord is synonymous with the Vietnam War, Nazi Prince Bernhard Perf- Perf- Perf-
4: Okay, agent, okay, Nazi Prince Bernhard preferently
3: mass killer product. Many uh, veterans suffered permanent side effects from their exposure to the potential defoliant. Hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese children have been born with serious birth defects. Current use of global mass poisoning through the Nazi Dutch territory, U.S., Europe, See the Chemtrails, And the rest of the world, yeah. Chemtrails. Sure, you're right about that, and causing mass silent, massive silent mass poisoning. Vietnam War ended, but a silent threat from Agent Orange remained an unfinished business. And I remember when I was a forest fighter, we used Agent Orange to make uh, fire breaks or fire lines. Um, Dr. Bercola interviews Mark. Castillo about Agent Orange post-war effects. As As a Nazi hostage, Netherlands first dumped chemical waste in Belgium because of the open borders of the Benelux Treaty of 1958, later across all Europe, America, and the rest of the world, including the gravel pits and landfills in Wallen, Belgium from the former president, European Socialist Guy Spintols Spintel's uh, Bilderberg member mentioned in uh, Dutroux files as driving force. Spintel's was called uh, Deal Equal God in province of Limburg, Flanders, with former president. European Socialist and Secretary General of NATO, Willy Claes, and that's C L A E S. So I'm assuming it's Claes. In 1990, the Belgium Multinational salva, Salva took over the Dutch Nazi company, Phyllis. Too far, who in 1960 produced 2,250 tons of highly toxic carcinogenic agent orange in the Netherlands for the U.S. Army? Whereby in 1963 a tra- tragic da- disaster happened in a Dutch factory, where after they dumped chemical agent orange waste illegally in a net in nature like. The Dutch something another, vulgar meer polder. Many veterans suffered permanent side effects from their exposure to this potential def- defoliant, and hundreds of thousands of children have been born with serious t- uh, yeah, side effects as a result of its use during, World war, during the war. Excuse me, Vietnam War. What happened as testing ground for the current global mass poisoning with pesticides other known and unknown substances in our atmosphere caused by chemicals, chemtrails, possibly because of the Nazi Netherlands-based companies who give directly authorization to their global subsidiaries companies with shortcomings in the Nazi law on Dutch territory? What is, very, what is in very serious conflict with Article 121 and 22 of the Dutch Constitution, however, no longer may be viewed by a judge because of Article 60, afterwards Article 120, the court shall not assess the constitutionality of agreements. Chemtrails are officially recognized by the UN and the German government and, ex- and executed by NATO... And low budget aircraft allowing poison, po- allowing to poison our earth's foliage, and all live on, went on including our water, whatever that's. After 1976, the Belgium former EU Commissioner Carl van Merck <clears throat> became cabinet chief of Willy Clay's. Uh, their Minister of Economic Affairs. Both are socialist Bilderberg members mentioned in the Dutroux files. On Willie Clay's request, uh, Carl Van Mert became Deputy National Secretary of the Unitary Belgian Socialist Party, followed by Euro parliamentarian in 1979 and after European Commissioner for the Transport uh, Consumer Affairs Credit and Investment in 1989 till 1999. He was international advisor by the Goldman uh, Sachs Group who conquers Europe, it says our video, and participated in financing the global mass poisoning. Genocide, Gen 21. Carl von Mert was director of the Belgian multinational Solvay, who in the 1990s took over the Dutch uh, Nazi agent orange production company, Phyllis Dufar. Mm-hmm. He was counselor of the Solvays America, Solvay North America, and several... Phillips companies worldwide, even big pharmacy pharmacy giant, E L I L. Eli Lilly Holdings. The Eli Lilly Holdings. That's what it is, I think. Uh, there's a video there. Uh, not to forget the oh, Rabo Bank of Netherlands. Ancient orange first could be produced due to the Dutch pesticide law that was declared in 1962 to counter the bankruptcy after the Netherlands lost of Indonesia by the efforts of Robert F. J. F. Kennedy, which means that the Dutch constitution or Nazis is not only disabled,
4: after the revision of Article sixty and in nineteen fifty three with an ex- that doesn't make much sense oh, but anyways we'll just keep on reading. nineteen
3: fifty three with the extension, quote, the court shall not assess the constitutionality of agreements afterwards and in nineteen eighty change the arc in Article one hundred twenty. But in combination with the pesticide laws of 1962, no account should be taken of. And it says, first, the adverse effects effects of these pesticides during the use phase and disposal phase. And then finally, and where not active chemicals being unknown, other very toxic, toxic, corrosive, harmful substances need not be mentioned on the label. They granted the possibility of illegally dumping the chemical waste with high profit to subsidiary, subsidiary, subsidiary companies worldwide, including the possibility to manipulate products with harmful substances among the other uh, vaccines, pesticides, chemtrails, uh, chlorines of the tap water, all possible because of the authorization obtained in the lawless by nazi occupied netherlands that are giving directly to foreign subsidiaries companies which may be used in all countries in the world where these companies are located outside of the approval of the local government worldwide governments worldwide without respect of local constitution or a court has Ruled on it. Please look what Agent Ornn is doing to our DNA. Click here to view report. Genetic damage in New Zealand Vietnam War veterans participants. Report C, Institution of Molecular Bioscience. And it is added to our tap water also Agent Ornn agreed. headed towards your plate. Belgium Socialist, this is more of a global depopulation genital, was started in 1992. Belgium Socialist and former Deputy Prime Minister André Koules announced in 1991 that he was about to make some revelations about the mafia and their links to some of the most important people in uh, Leeds, L I E G E. Kools had most impertinently announced that the Belgian press, to the Belgian press, that he would soon release startling evidence about the cooperation in Belgium's growing arms industry and its ties to the Canadian billionaire Brompton Brothers and a number of major U.S. political figures and Republican fat cats with influence reaching into the inner circle of the Bush White House. That says there's a video. Among the names of the, of that Kuhl's promised to present evidence on were Dick Cheney, Neil Bush, Frank Carlucci, Donald Rumsfeld, and members of the powerful uh, Barbers and Ratsycock clan, who all own large shares in major arms manufacturers as well as Britain Jonathan Atkin, Thatcher Secretary of State for Defense, who had large holdings in the string of British arms suppliers and was a leading figure in the Tory Party hierarchy. Shortly thereafter, nineteen ninety one, Pools was shot dead before he could speak about it. Guy Spindels, photo right person, Willie Clays, photo left person, and Andrew, cool, Andrew Cool's photo middle person were members of the Masonic Grand Lodge of Belgium that was separately established in the year after the Beneluk Treaty, 1959, because of the good relations with the Jews in Antwerp England, Rothschilds, and the American Rockefeller slash Bush misuse, and has got a video here. And misuse of support of the Nazi fascist world order continued from the territory of the Netherlands and expanded to Benelux, Europe, America, and the rest of the world with a fascist agenda and genocide consequences. Since the assassination of Andrew Kuhls, nobody dares to talk publicly. Shortly, at why, shortly after Willie Kless, uh followed up Guy Spindles as president of the European Socialists, and in July of 1992, they officially started Agenda 21. There's a video, it says, and together with George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and the Socialists wit and... Uh, Nazi Netherlands and the UN, the uh, a genocide agenda that officially exp- expand worldwide. I mean, it's to expand worldwide by signing the Rio de Rio de Janeiro Protocol in 1992 under the chairmanship of the Dutch Environment Minister, Socialist Hans Adlers. Uh, wow, this knowing. And science, uh, the same year, huh, with this knowledge, whatever, with this knowledge in science, the same year, cogley Socialist Dutch sec- ter- State Secretary Hans Simmons of Health, Welfare, and Culture faked the label of pesticides, Super Wells Menzoot Company, on its own for 374 gallons of arsenic acid to 104 gallons of arsenic pen oxide, knowing that in reality, 374 gallons of arsenic acid remained a cat, cat one carcinogenic, category 1 carcinogenic chemical waste. What is more dangerous as arsenic pentoxide? Let's just click here on document. Well, these guys try to document all this stuff. The worldwide dumping of mass illegal chemical waste with the high profits and genocide consequences now and explosive in the near future following the signing of the Cato protocol by the European community in April of nineteen ninety eight again under the chairmanship of a Dutch socialist environmental minister Jean Pronk. Consequently in signature in South Africa during the substantially the so sustainability, so availability during the sustainability conference in Johannesburg Johannesburg. Uh in September two thousand two one second under the chairmanship by the Dutch environmental Sec- secretary Pierre van Giel, C D A. Well, it's heavy stuff, isn't
4: it? Stuff you
3: don't hear up every day, right? In 1996, there were reports of the gangs involved in the Kohl's killing had been involved in Mark de the discovery of the computer disc of DeTrue's house. In 1996, unraveled an international pedophile ring involving Belgium, the Netherlands, Portugal, the U.S., Great Britain, and Japan. The names found on the computer disc reached into the highest level of political society and various countries and institutions including some of the very members of the Belgian government who had originally been implicated in the assassination, the assassination of Adrian Kuhls. For this elite there is no way back. Genocide Agenda 21 to implemented to justify their actions in global expansion the, the, uh, from Nazi Expansion. I don't know what that means, the from. I think it says from Nazi Netherlands out of hand, mass poisoning for high profits. Since there is no way back, this time they include mass depopulation genocide video implemented from the Netherlands to continue funding these fascist world order. Under the guise of sustainability, mass poisoning at high p- profits called eco- ecologically, environmentally friendly biomass, green power, sustainable. It's CO2 reduction, environmental con- con- concert. I think it means environmental conservation, secondary fuel recycling. Rio de Janeiro Protocol, Keto Protocol, dumping the most carcinogenic way, industrial waste such as arsenic acid, chromium or chrome six and many others. Okay. I well, think he's doing a pretty good job. Sounds like he's not actually English, so. Uh the UN part of a continuing Nazi policy. Wherefore, they have reestablished the International UN Court of Justice in 1946 in The Hague, where the knowledge that Holland Holland's sins in 1940 is in, hand, in the hands of Hitler cabinet because of the Article 21 of the Dutch Constitution that says, under no circumstances can the seat of guard be placed outside of the empire. Which means that the Dutch government has lifted itself to violate, maybe to in violations. I, mean, I don't know. And then you got this Hitler regime could that way put it. Okay, Hitler regime could put himself in place of the Queen Wilhelmina of Netherlands. After the war, the Germans never officially given back Dutch territory whereby the Third Reich Stealth could be transferred further by the Netherlands. For these elite are in no way... I don't know. He's starting to lose me here of the language. For the he's misspelling or putting things wrong. For the elite, there is no way back. Okay, okay, there's no way back. Um, therefore, we they decided to implement stealth killer mass dispopulation through global poisoning, including chemtrails and vaccinations. During the investigation into the murder of the Belgian politician Adrian Coles, came a number of corporate. Corruption scandals upward, including the affair of um, Augusta Dessault, Dessault, who would lead in the late 90s the conviction of the Bilderberg members, Guy Spindle and Willie Clays, who came in the early 90s. Out of nowhere on the world stage, together with CIA cocaine distributor Bill Clinton, former governor of uh, Mena, Arkansas, who organized contra supply and drug operations, both are considered responsible for the Rwanda genocide.
4: As the terror in Rwanda had unfolded, Clinton has shown virtually
3: no interest in stopping the genocide, and his administration had stood by as the death toll rose into hundreds of thousands. One of the pivotal conversations in the course of the genocide took place when, the, the time, when the, that time, when at that time, Belgium Foreign Minister Willy Claes called the State Department to request cover. And we are pulling out. We do, but we don't want to be seen as doing it alone. Claes asked, I said, asking the Americans to support a full UN withdrawal. And uh, Delar had not anticipated that a Belgian would extract its soldiers, removing the backbone of his mission in standing Rwandans in their hour of greatest need. The Belgians do not want to leave ignominiously. I never could, I'm not saying it right. What am I, how am I sorry to say that? but ignominiously whatever, ignominiously by itself. Warren Christopher agreed to back the bells and request for a full U.N. exit. The policy over the next month or so can be described simply. No U.S. military intervention will best demands for the withdrawal of all of Delar's Del forces and no support for a new U.N. mission that would challenge the killers really clays had to cover his need his needed this is videos one two three had to cover he needed that's what was supposed to say in the course of a hundred days 1994, in 1994 is the junta government and under Rwanda and its extremist allies barely needed to see exterminating the country's Tutsi minority using firearms machetes, and a variety of gardening equipment. Junta militiamen, soldiers, and ordinary citizens murdered some 800,000 innocent men, women, and children over the course of approximately 100 days. From the assassination of a juvenile Heby Manna, I don't know, and all these other guys, and this other person, which I can't pronounce names. name, and, um, in April 6th through mid-July, and there's more videos, Tootsies and the Political Moderate Houthi, it was the fastest, most efficient killing spree in the 20th century. That's amazing, they can kill that many people that fast. Good greatness. What You know what? They take away your guns. That's what they can do to you. so twice people in September 1994 just two months after the genocide massacre of Rwanda, the thousand Willie Clays mentioned in the, the truce files was nominated by NATO foreign minister to succeed Manfred Warners as Secretary General of NATO for excellent services the Illuminati Nazi equals and uh, uh, W.O. of course the Jesuits, Rome, uh, for centuries deceived the human race into war with each other, to divide and conquer, mislead and distort the truth. Where the Serbian nations for centuries fought against, therefore the, uh, therefore the human race should unite in peace and share responsible opposition to their real enemy. Balkan, including Croat citizens, were one of the most misled by this powerful minority, warmongers. Okay. The builder, the Belgian Bilderberg member, Willie Clays, took up his appointment as Secretary General on the 17th of October 1994. Not coincidentally, the Dutch soldiers hastily formed out of the emerging First Air Mobile Brigade of Royal Netherlands Army armed forces between February of 1994 and November of 1995 to participate in peacekeeping operations in former Yugoslavia. And and its third replacement, Dutch Bet 3, commanded by the Dutch Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Karamens, the uh, Surpernica enclave I don't know what that is. Uh, enclave fell to the Bosnian Serbs under Colonel General Ratkol Maldik, who did not cause genocide like the media put forward this enclave was sacrificed to justify the occupation of the Balkans in co- collaboration with the Bosnian Mohamed Sarkibai Sa- ambassador of the UN. Islamic jihad linked to 9-11, the Muslim leader and former Hitler SS officer. How jihad is that, beg, Jennifer? I don't know. Nazi connection to Islamic Balkan terrorism in Nazi Netherlands and the Dutch Blue Helmets. The NATO Secretary General Willie and the U.S. and the President Bill Clinton, who represented the New World Order, or the Jesuits in Rome, uh, deceived the whole world population. Uh, And then it talks about these, uh, Hajj Amid al-Husseini with Hitler. These radical Muslims have continued to work together, including false flag terror and on their one people to take over and radicalize Muslim countries with the prospect of establishing a united fascist world order. That at the expense of ordinary Jews,
4: Christians, Muslims, and other world populations, who should perform, mm-hmm. who should perform united opposition against these
3: mass murderers. Co-founder of the No Cancer Foundation has three immediate family members who survived the camp of Auschwitz. Just like genocide in maybe it's supposed must be Srebrenica, Srebrenica, Surbanic, Bosnia. In actual, its reality was twisted and misused to implement their fascist world government, NWO. Islamic Turkey can exert, extort, uh, along, what does that mean, extort, uh, along Dutch territory continued Nazi regime, including his influence at the Bloomberg Conference because of the child abuse in Turkey by the Dutch Secretary General of Justice George Demink, also involved in false terror. Therefore, the US Congress Chris Smith, Republican of New Jersey, caused the US Secretary of State to seek to remove the ICG seat from the Hague which is undermined by its current location.
4: And then it goes on and on about this stuff. I don't watch me to read this. A lot of stuff about Belgium. UNESCO A lot of stuff goes on in Belgium. Of course, got NATO there, right? I wonder what else they got there? Well, I think
3: that's what I'm going to stop for now. This has been a long recording. There's been a lot of information. Um, yeah. Interesting journey. So, anyways, you can see that the Rome... Uh, it uses Roman Catholicism it uses the banking system it uses the military system the NATO along with the United States government and their military the Pentagon this hexagram that seems to be everywhere you see this desperate attempt for Rome to try to unify itself through religion politics and money monetary system Rome The Roman Empire still exists, it's obvious to me. Um, You see that the Byzantine Empire or the Rome of the East, which is now um, Moscow, let me see what's going on there. Uh, There is this eternal war that's been going on forever, I shouldn't call it eternal war, but a thousand year war. It will be in what, uh, less than 30 years. <clears throat> between uh, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. Then you got got Islam and their connection to all this. And then in the middle of all that, you have the Jews. They always seem to be some kind of admission switch type of thing. They use them all over and over again. And if you look at Judeo-Christianity, at least the version that comes out of Babylon with... Uh, the mystery schools, type of thing, and uh, the Tahitic Jews, and um, they, they clearly are part of all this. Obviously, they're part of it. I don't buy into this or they're running it. I think they're part of this whole, you know, what we call the papacy, uh, the ruling elite, the black nobility, judo Christianity. Then there's people like us who are biblical Christians who are just a big thorn in their side and they can, you, know, you know, we're not really considered... Uh, a lot of them don't think we're Christians. Isn't that interesting? Because we're not uh, Orthodox Christians, Catholics, or uh, are Roman Catholic. Now you look at this uh, debate that these gentlemen had, and it was like you only heard the first half of it, that was their first half, you know, each had a half an hour to present their point, And you listened listen to the guy who was Roman Catholic and to hear what his message was. We need to learn to forgive each other. You guys need to come back to us. And there's not going to be any serious change in Rome, and so they want
4: us to come back to them. And that's what it's about. I mean, that's what it is. It's really about
3: this world domination, a new world order, which the Jesuits are talking about for a long time now. You can find endless articles and and, uh, um, videos I'm talking about, which has always been the plan, right? The papacy, the Pope, feels that the Caesar, the Caesar or this uh, unholy Roman Empire, Or at least the image of the beast. I'm not quite sure because you know he studies. You know, is, is the Pope really in control, or he just a figurehead of the the religion of Babylon, the the um, the, ba- the Roman Catholic branch of the Babylonian religion? If that makes any sense? Because it sounds to me like actually a lot of these popes are just, of course, they're elected. So that means they're selected, and so there's a group behind them that's that's controlling and selective, and then there's the cardinals. Now, who are the cardinals? What's their connection with the black nobility or the elite, which seems to be universally, or not universally, but the majority are Roman Catholic, plus they have their membership in their little secret societies.
4: Then there's the Jewish element and all that, to Christianity. It's a wild ride. Uh, I think that's why it's so important, at least for me at this point in
3: stage, to have faith in Jesus Christ right now alone and in his scripture because I don't know who else to trust at this point. <laughs> I can't trust myself. I don't have all the answers, and obviously I can't trust most uh, people who are religious leaders,
4: um, politicians, etc., so that doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else, it just means there's serious issues
3: going on, as it seems like there always has been, so, anyways... This is today's unholy Roman Empire, and it's really a strange and bizarre ride, and the, the elements are beyond one man's ability to comprehend is isn't it?
4: So, anyways, God bless and take care.